remixed and remastered the 2009 podcast with Dave Arnold comes in. It's uh, Dave Arnold's had a tremendous career uh, over the years working. Uh, well, we mostly cover his uh, Honda years he here, but he also uh, after he left Honda in the car division, which I think he's doing at the time of this podcast. He uh, he went to Geico Honda for a little bit. He was a chassis guy. And then he now he's presently at Rockstar Husky, I believe, as a uh, chassis man. He's a super smart dude. This guy's been around for a long time. His, his 1981 Motocross Nation story where the USA pulled off a huge upset is epic. Stories about Bailey, Hannah, Bale, RJ, Cliff White. I mean, just everybody. Dave Arnold is... Uh, a walking, talking, a motocross encyclopedia, and I covered it in two podcasts, which you're going to hear here in the 2009 Classics. These are when I was at Transworld Motocross. I went to Transworld Motocross for a year, and uh, that was a little weird and strange. I'm happy to be back at Racer X. Um, everything went well at Transworld. I got nothing bad to say. Good guys, Don Maeda, buddy of mine to this day. Talk to him. I always found these podcasts because I, I did them for a year at Racer X. Then I went to Transworld. Then I went back to Racer X, where I still am uh, eight years later. But I always found these podcasts got way more buzz, if you have, in the form of tweets and emails and, and people at the races, when I was on Racer X as opposed to when I went to Transworld. It was weird. The Transworld audience, I think, I think there's some people that just never went to Transworld, and there's some people that never go to Racer X. You know what I mean? There's just a separate audience. And I always found like I did some really cool podcasts in 09 at Transworld and some people never even heard them or talked to me about them or anything. And, uh, and when I went back to Racer X, it was like they rediscovered podcasting again. I don't know. Kind of weird. Anyways. So this is, uh, uh like I said, Transworld, uh, motocross podcast from 2009, but it's still brought to you by Racer X <laughs> and fly racing mission Starcross five. And, uh, the, the, uh, race tech guys are all on board with us. Remixed, remastered, sounds not great in part one. It's a little too much hot. It's a little too much, uh, it's hot, it's high, uh, too much gain. And a little better in part two, which I believe we're separated by a week in real time. But I try my best with everything I can do to make it sound a little bit better for you people. So anyways, uh, please enjoy this uh, great podcast from Dave Arnold. And uh, if you're into moto at all, if you're a historian from back in the day, you will love this podcast. All right. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. Hey, Pulp fans. Thanks for your support. Whether you're subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, visiting PulpMX.com, streaming the show via the Stitcher app on your smartphone, or buying from our show sponsor, BTOsports.com, without you, we could not do this. You can still type M-A-T-T-H-E-S upon checkout at BTOsports.com if your order is $100 or more for a discount. Lastly, for some insider info and maybe a laugh or two, follow Mathis' Twitter updates at twitter.com slash pulpmx.
Mathis Show disclaimer. During this episode of the Steve Mathis Show, there is a high chanceability. You will either learn something a lot of people don't know. You are thinking Duh. or make you say to yourself, dude, that's so funny. The bottom line is this podcast serves as archival documentation of this interview. Welcome to the BTOsports.com podcast show, brought to you by Transworld Motocross, hosted by Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com Transworld Motocross Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Steve Mathis, and with me on the line is a long, long time uh, influential person in motorcycle racing and now the head of a Honda R&D car and bike, Dave Arnold. Uh, Dave, thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. This will be fun. I've listened to your guys' show uh, a, a few times, and it's actually quite a, a, an exciting concept. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I uh, I don't even know where to start with you, man. Uh, there's so much we need to get to. But uh, I guess right away, what do you, like I said, you're doing R&D now for Honda? Yeah, that's right. I was in racing for 20 years. I've been with Honda for 36 years. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, the whole race thing, and as, as, as focused as we were and as, as much traveling, it, it takes us toll over a long period of time, and I thought when I hit the 20-year mark, uh, I moved over into new product development at R&D, new product testing, and and at first it was motorcycle, but now they've combined motorcycle and cars, so I'm helping the automotive guys build, uh, kind of running the machine and fab shop for auto, and they mainly facilitate uh, model. It's a design thing. They build really nice models, really nice shop, Uh and then we're still doing a lot of the prototype skunk work stuff for the motorcycle division. Right. Right. How much do you get over to the race shop and 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 BS with uh, uh, Gary Martini and Eric Kehoe and those guys? How much does that? You happen? know, I, I still go over quite a bit. I mean, motorcycles always been my passion. It was my it was my passion and hobby as I was growing up as a kid, and uh, and then I made the career out of it. But it was still that the whole time I was in racing, and even now I'm in auto. I go I go back over to the race shop. I don't know every week, every other week, and right. kick things around and just say hi to everybody and try to get in their way a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you can uh, fire Shane Drew for me. That'd be awesome. Uh, he's an old, oh yeah. Well, I'll, I'll help those guys work on that. Yeah, old friend of mine from back in Canada. So uh, just throw that out there. Um, Shane Shane does a good job. Suspension is a big part of their program, and and we talk quite a bit. Uh, and then also, how much do you keep up with today's racing? Are you are you one of those guys that uh, is knowing on what's going on every weekend? Or you know, it's kind of both. Um, you know, it's it's racing is was never really a social thing for me. I mean, when Honda, you know, when I got involved, the Japanese were, I mean, I I don't classify it as anything else but corporate war, and Mm -hmm. there was a bunch of espionage, and it wasn't recreational. I mean, it maybe started out that way in the 70s as a new sport and as a developing sport, right? um, you know, because, of course, it came from Europe and all that, but it didn't take long for the Japanese to, all of them, want to make their mark and, and, you know, develop the hardware and create the image and, and advertise the wins and it, so it was never really that recreational for me I mean mm-hmm. it was it was 
I, you know, at Honda, Mr. Honda was still alive, and those project leaders were getting slapped around by him and directly, and they were slapping me around directly, and right. we had a lot of pressure on us to win. So yeah, and and, and that, so therefore, yeah. when I got out of it, it's not you know, it's kind of like a drug or something. You know, you you almost stay away just because <laughs> you can't you can't really sustain. You know, when you were doing it, it was such a it was such a high stress deal that you don't go back for. For, yeah, I have a lot of good friends in racing, but I probably don't go as back as much as I should. Uh, well, my next question was, was how much do you miss it? But I think you answered that. <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot of things I miss about racing. I mean, I, I, when you, I don't know, I guess you call it the real world because racing really isn't the real world, right? right. I mean, racing is a very unique activity, but there's a couple things I really miss about racing. One is you work around real thoroughbred people that from the mechanics or riders, everybody of the R&D test guys, everybody has to be hitting on eight cylinders, committed 100%. It, they can't be focused on their own internal issues or, or schedules and, and needs as much as they are the, the, the bigger goal. Right. And, and you know, it's very, very true in racing that you're, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And when you go other places within corporations or even job, you know, uh, you know, you find a, a lot of people, you, you, you never really get to push people to that weakness like you do in racing. And I miss that. I miss the real committed, the, 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 the real focus on, um, I guess, the challenging, the challenge of, of racing. I, I really miss that. It's a real, uh, right. it's kind of a drug again. I mean, you really get wound up and, and it kind of takes takes a hold of your whole activities. Right. I did one of these with Rich Taylor, and your name came up a few times uh, just because of the R&D uh, right. and everything else. What an interesting uh, podcast that was. But yeah. it, it, now you're working on that end of things. If I had told a 1977 Dave Arnold that in 2010 there's going to be EFI and we're all going to be racing four strokes, what would you have thought? <laughs> you know... You know, I've actually, personally, I've always been a four-stroke guy, ironically, and yeah. I rode, I was really into British bikes as I was going to, because British bikes, that was kind of the thing. I mean, there was Triumphs and BSAs, and and even when, uh, you know, as the British, as the four-strokes, let's say, everything was a four-stroke then, as, as they started to get obsoleted by, you know, the Husqvarna's and, and the Mako's and the CZ's and all those things, mm-hmm. um, you know, I always really, uh, and, and then I started working for Honda. And then, of course, you're as deep as you could ever be working with engineers in Japan on, at first it was piston port engines and then case reeds and then reed valves and then, you know, all these, and then rotary valves and and then exhaust valves and into all these systems. I mean, as the whole engines evolved and all the technology right. was developed, um, I still, I had a soft spot, you know, um, in the 70s, there was still some guys riding CCMs and works DSA, John Banks and a few guys like that, Dave Vickers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then and then later on, when Husaberg, you know, I mean, and even when, I think, even when two strokes were at their peak in the 70s and, and 80s, I, I still think that there was a lot of us that, and if we could ever make a lightweight four-stroke, like yeah, Lucasburg yeah. finally did, right? I mean, he, I think everybody wanted a, a four-stroke that was built in the same, mm-hmm. um, the, the same, same the thing. same effort, the same lightweight compact as two strokes evolved into. Right. And and then you know, of course, everything everybody followed Lucasburg, you know, Yamaha, and then all the factories, and some of that was tied to. You know the EPA and you know off road and you know, they you know I think 
think the government and the local agency, regulatory bodies, they, they didn't take them long to figure out that everybody was riding two strokes in the deserts instead of XRs. So yeah, right, right. Um, but it's pretty amazing where we've come in this in this yeah. span of four strokes. It, it, yeah. it totally is. And and to be honest, I'd have to say that even I mean yes, except for EFI, I'd have to say that there is. And I'm, again, I, I don't want to say that when we were doing it, it was all cool and we did all the the big the big developments, and then there then there was nothing because it's not that way, obviously. Mm-hmm. But but I mean during the late 70s and especially the 80s, I mean that's when everything. Everything. I mean, that's when the factories really changed the castings um, and, and the chassis geometries to accept long travel, and and the chassis rigidity went way up, and the the engines got went much more compact, and the engines made much broader power bands. And mm-hmm. I'd almost have to say that I don't want to say it got boring, but I always really liked the development of the hardware, and it really really slowed down after I'd say going into the 90s. Right. And I would say there's been almost nothing new from that period in, yeah, there's been little things, but we joke at work that it's the difference between all the bikes is like a sticker kit and a, and a, and a paint job now. Yeah. And, yeah. and until fuel injection. So now Husaberg has their Husqvarna now. You know, they did some things with the engine configuration. Now Yamaha turned that around. I mean, my hats off to those. At least those developments are a little bit out of the box and people are trying some things new again. So. I, I agree. Yeah, the Yamaha bike seems to be a hot and cold bike as far as whether you like it or not, but I yeah. applaud them for thinking outside the box a little bit, you know. Oh no, totally, totally. And and uh, but having said that, know, but having said that, when I was at Yamaha, yeah. we had that four-stroke, and we obviously, as you know, we all know, all the OEMs buy each other's bikes and look at them. When I was at Yamaha, we had our four-stroke. You guys came out with your four-stroke. Yeah. In what was it? Oh six. Oh seven. I think it was oh six, but I'm probably off a year too. Right. And we got that thing, and we were like. Oh man, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it was lighter, yeah. skinnier, yeah. faster. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I just not to bag on Honda for not coming up with the with the Yamaha model, but you guys sort of put the world of four stroke on its ear with your first CRF too. You know, I can tell you. You know, I'll probably I'm going to hear about this in uh, weeks to come when I go back to the company. But um, it was always with all the Japanese, and, and I worked at Honda, so especially Honda. I mean, they they really wanted to be first with all those big developments. And you know, the the four stroke thing was a hard nut for Honda to leave because you know they have standards for the development of all these things. I mean, every company does, and mm-hmm. maybe they're a little bit different. It's all kind of trade secret for that particular company, but. But, you know, Honda was developing two strokes for motocross and four strokes for off road. Now, mm-hmm. you know, two strokes, and I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but people, they don't ride those things for the Baja 1000 as much as they do going to local racetracks, and they don't put the hours on them, and they, right. you know, they, they service the air cleaner at shorter periods of times and put a new piston and ring and all that. And things are made to be more compact, lightweight, you know, for course type competition. Mm-hmm. And then the XRs were made more for the real endurance thing. They had standards that were quite different for for off-road, for Baja, Bruce Ogilvy, desert stuff, right. than, than the motocross stuff. And, you know, just to say, hey, we want to make a four-stroke like the two-stroke. I mean, Honda, you had all these engineers that, that, that were trained and they had all these standards for de- developing all these desert, Baja, ultra-durable, long-distance engines. And then, you know, you're going to make something that's just, 
half the weight and right. you know of course of course if you eat, of course they're going to explode and of course they're not going <laughs> to last and, and have the same durability yeah. standards as maybe an XR would have maybe 10 years ago right but um, Yamaha you know they always told us there's no way in hell there's no way in hell and then Yamaha comes out with it and then they're probably poop on it for six months and then pretty soon it's the reality of oh my we better get yeah. our act together you know well, I, the, yeah. the bottom line is they like to lead and that was one one example of them not being able to lead and mm-hmm. and it, it, it really caused some ripples within the company yeah they got they got pissed and they came up with a lighter faster quicker mm-hmm. turning version of right. the Yamaha Forster right. Um, right you know it's just no secret in racing what goes on I mean all the other all the other models are in the back of the shops and, you know and all that and people are looking yeah um, and, and sometimes to be first is the biggest risk because right. you know you know once you create that investment for all those molds and all of that casting and all those frame fixtures and I mean you don't really get to change them every year and then once everybody kind of looks at what you did and then you know you're out there racing the thing weekend and we even when it's a work spike they can kind of look at what you did right and wrong and where they want to do it a little bit different and right. it's always easier to follow and then try to up the ante a little bit um, what in your opinion like with two strokes what if we had never discovered four strokes if the AMA had never put in a double the CC limit rule that really started the ball rolling. If the AMA had never done that, what was the next thing coming on two strokes? What were we going to do, in your opinion? Was there going to be, like, direct injection or something? Or uh, I think they were looking at direct injection. They were looking at all kinds of things. I mean, Honda built, I think they called it an AR, and they raced it off-road, and they had the, a bunch of engineers that were involved for the HRC two-stroke engine, motocross engine development, and they had them work on when when all this movement went to four-stroke, they said, okay, what if we never did that? What if right. two-strokes had to comply to all these same emission standards, and what if two-strokes evolved? And they they built prototypes. They they. they they worked on developing that hardware, and the bottom line is those two st- obviously two strokes a very simple engine, right? As you know it, right? right? Well, once they developed two strokes that had a, an exhaust port that that was or, or a combustion chamber, a combustion system that was much more efficient, like a four stroke. Mm-hmm. Well, essentially, it was just as complicated as a four stroke, and it had right. as many parts. Yeah, and, you know, and so then maybe even it ran super lean. It was on the verge of detonation and needed all this engine management to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then at that point in time, it wasn't quite the pleasurable experience that maybe just even having a four-stroke would be. So Right, right. You were, think, lo- you were losing the soul of a two-stroke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how much did you have to – now, talking about being first for Honda, their 97 CR250 with that aluminum frame was – you know, it blew pretty much everyone out of the water, but it wasn't the best bike. Uh, right. Uh, just handling and chassis. I mean, I was, uh, I was a local pro. I rode my buddies. I hated it, but whatever. How much do you regret about that bike and, and working with that bike? And, and did you do you think you missed the mark to to this day? Or talk about the you development know, of that thing. Yes, you, you, you and I are, are the guys that want to buy the product and go to the track and do direct comparisons. And I think to a manufacturer like Honda, they're looking at a bigger picture than mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard, even being involved in development processes, for us to understand. And they knew that that chassis was way too stiff. I mean, they had, they know the rigidity, all these manufacturers, they know how the torsional and lateral and bending centers and everything, they know right. how their chassis and how, how much uh, compliance and flexibility 
and control and G-force and, you know, they, 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 they have engineering and science that goes into the development of all this product. Right. And so, they, and they, there was a trend of chassis rigidity, we'll just say, mm-hmm. you know, for steel chassis prior to aluminum chassis. But, and, and the aluminum chassis was off the top. It wasn't comparable in any way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and therefore, it, it had the over-the-top, the, the compliance and bump impact, bump impact and some of the deflection issues. But to Honda, in the big picture, if, you know, even if they tried, if they tried to focus more on the performance issues and try to make it directly comparable, I mean, yes, lighter mm-hmm. and, and stiffer, and, and you know, but let's say the thing had durability issues, they never would have been able to recover. It would have ruined the image of aluminum chassis. Right, good point. So they were going to yeah. overbuild it, even even to to do that type of welding with robots in mass production is a mouthful, right? Right. And they they have to study. Well, you know, steel they just put MIG welding and a bunch of heat and it's, it's quite a bit easier in mass production but yep. when you start talking you know TIG welding and, and a lot of it some of it's MIG some of it's TIG some of it's hand welded and right. it has to be cosmetic and 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 they know exactly the, 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 the tolerance of a good weld and a, back, a bad weld by these robots so they'd have to go through the development of aluminum chassis by making the entire chassis with really bad welds that yeah. you know worst case scenario and so the bottom line is they knew exactly what they were doing, even if they got bagged on a little bit. I mean, there was the newness of it all. People bought that stuff. And then at the end of the year, they were like, man, they, you know, it, those bikes were super fast, if you remember, right? They yeah. had the power valve on them yep. or that power jet in the carburetor. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then I think over the next course of the few years, you know, then they knew um, if they cracked and, and was that within, I mean, how many did they have to replace? And did that fall with unacceptable levels? And yeah. And then they started to, over the years, they've started to, to make the beam smaller and a little bit thinner and then the, the flux a little bit more. And it, it was all on purpose. And and it was just, oh, yes, it was overbuilt because they didn't want to have problems the first year out. If they had problems, people would have said the stuff was garbage, and then they, it never would have evolved. And uh, and you could make a point, you know, a few years back, uh, Suzuki had a problem on their brand-new RMZ450. Uh, it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't uh, related. It was a case failure, I think. I think they had a kickstart problem, and they had something yeah. else go wrong. Yes. And you could yeah. make a case that Suzuki has still not recovered from that. It didn't get released. Yeah. To, it didn't really get released to the magazines for the shootouts. Yeah. Therefore, it didn't sell. And, you know. You know. This is. Uh, you know. Every company, I think they they've got a DNA. They have something that they go. This is us, and this is something we're going to do really well. Right. And you know, the I mean, the Japanese in general, if you throw a blanket over them, I mean, they build really good quality product and at a pretty reasonable price. Mm-hmm. And, and and you're getting and you're getting a lot of technology for that dollar. I mean, if you really look at how much technology goes into a dirt bike, it's it's unbelievable. Cartridge forks and fuel injection and exhaust valves and all this stuff. Right. Uh, suspension systems and the whole bit, how compact, lightweight. But um but you know, Honda's DNA was reliability and if it if they're reliable for ten years and then they have one years where they're not, well then people you know, you, you lose that reputation pretty quickly. Right, right. And you know, Suzuki maybe you can think of Suzuki and you go, Well wow, they do really good at sport bikes and then Kawasaki maybe does, you know, really good at this area, but that whole reliability thing um, you know, even when, like in the case you brought up the 97, even when it nicks, like, 
performance in some way, you know, like right. let's say those chassis were a little bit too stiff the first year, mm-hmm. they didn't break, right? And that's and Honda <laughs> wants to hang their hat on that, so that's a good point. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's funny how how much you think about Honda um, lawnmowers, cars, generators, anything Honda makes yeah. is reliability. Yeah. That is really their they, their hallmark. They, that's that's yeah. for the you know, and and they're not just selling dirt bikes. And of course, you know, we're we're getting real critical in the magazines, the press, and of course we're enthusiasts and we're looking at every angle and we're looking, factoring in styling and we want to have factoring in the the latest rider and the fashions and the you know. The, right. the, how they're doing at the track but you know these some of these companies you know they're selling like you said generators and street bikes and lawnmowers and cars and you know mm-hmm. to them it's a bigger picture how much uh, how much are you worried about the costs of these new four strokes and across the board for everybody like you said you're getting amazing technology um, but how much are you worried that it's you know the, there's a lot of two-stroke four-stroke talk uh, people are wishing obviously they're they voted with their wallets and we're we're racing yeah. four strokes now, yeah. but yeah. how much? And I, I mean, obviously, you're a company guy, and you can't. I mean, yeah. you don't want to talk about. No, I mean, to, I'll, I'll tell you straight up. I mean, I mean, uh, I, I, I like the cool factor of four strokes, and but then these companies, and everybody wanted that. Right. Everybody wanted what we have, right? Yep. And there was one person that said, but. Um, but, you know, once you have it, then you go, well, wow, the, the, the cost to maintain this stuff, when it does wear out, it's a lot of parts, and there are a lot of expensive parts, and, mm-hmm. and that's a reality of that I think that we're just going to have to deal with. I mean, I, I think that there'll be kind of a happy medium, whether or not titanium valves and all the right. castings, maybe they compromise that stuff a little and then the pure cost of it all, too. I mean, even developing any product in Japan right now, just the yen the way it is, everything is expensive. And who knows? I'm, I'm not an expert about world economies, but I, <laughs> all this stuff is cyclical, right? It kind of yeah. goes up. It kind of goes down. And, do, you, do, but, you uh, day, but, do you see a day? Do you see a day? I don't know. I, I, mean, I mean, I would have to say that the cost of maintaining the four-stroke is, is more than maybe we all fit. You know what I mean? Now, now, now the cost of maintaining all that t- technology is, when the stuff does get time on it, is more than we thought it would be. And uh, I, I don't think it was a surprise to Honda. I think it's a surprise. It's a surprise to all the consumers. Yeah, yeah. No, and then, uh, and then I would have to say the other thing that that was a reality is the the noise issue of four strokes. Mm-hmm. And you know, two strokes. We all thought two strokes were loud. And I had engineers saying, "Yeah, but four strokes actually, even though it's a different decimal level and pitch, I mean, the actual pulse character is quite a bit more damaging and does and travels quite a bit further." And right. So I, I think that both those issues will. I think they, but but the market, even if the fact you're talking about it, you know, and and, and customers do vote with their wallet. It, it, those you know, it'll be addressed in the long run. I mean, if there's bikes that. That have exceptionally high maintenance, you know, more than some of their competitors. It'll yeah. people are going to figure that out over time. I mean, I'm sure in 1984, if you had said, "Hey, we're all going to be racing four strokes," uh, you would have said, "No way! They're too heavy. They're too slow. There's no chance." Right? So. I, yeah. I mean. I am, and maybe there's some truth to that. I even remember um, when some of the the higher level technology even came into two strokes. I mean, electronic power valves mm-hmm. and and uh, just a higher level sophistication, an increased level of technology, right? Right. And and uh, I, I'm not saying you know I'd have to preface this by saying I'm more of an analog guy than I am a a, a digital guy, right? I right. mean, I'm just I am that. But I, I kind of think that uh, I looked at all the 
I don't want to say blue collar, that's got a negative connotation, but I mean, people work on these things, and when you really start to ramp up sophistication for mm-hmm. how, the, you know, and, and I was always kind of the one in the process, or at least one voice in the process going, you got to be careful because <laughs> the people working on these things, I mean, you take your basic two-stroke, yeah. right? I mean, you, you pull the tank off, you pull the pipe off, you pull the cylinder off, you replace the reeds valves sometimes, and, and then the piston sometimes, and you put a fresh set of rings in it, and that thing's got, you know, a, yeah. a fifth of the horsepower back, right? Right. And it's a fresh engine. And But anyway, they're, they're very, very simple to work on, and I, I really was, I really am, still to this day, I like to get as much performance at, at the simplest equation. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, we've all got buddies who have never touched their four-strokes. They've never adjusted their valves. You know what I mean? You know, but you know, I, I, got, I got two things to say about that, right. and and the one is, I don't know that that's all two-stroke, four-stroke. I mean, a part of it is. I don't know to what level. I mean, you right. could probably debate that for quite a, a period of time. Yeah. But also, I think that. People, I mean, I think that there's less vocational education in schools. I mean, I think that kids, it's more of a, a throwaway society or a, I mean, I'm a, I'm a carpenter, so I do carpentry, but I don't work on my dirt bike. I mean, it used to be that, I'm not saying all the baby boomers, but there's some truth that, you know, everybody had to work on their cars at one time. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 35. Everybody, so. <laughs> everybody worked on their own V8s and right. changed their oil and adjusted their valves and in, in the 50s and 60s. And then pretty soon they put all, you know, when when the smog re- regulation came along, nobody could do that anymore. Right. So I don't know where I'm going with that other than I'm not sure everybody works on, would work on, even if, even if they weren't as complicated. Right. I'm not sure that the whole mentality of the current generation is, 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 uh, I think people just assume take it to a local shop and get it worked on. Yeah, 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 maybe, maybe so. I mean, but, but it's a point well taken. Look at cartridge forks. Uh-huh. I mean, you remember when you used to be, ta- you used to be able to take forks apart and they had a rod with a hole and you, you check the oil height, you put seals and bushings right. and you were done, right? Right. That, that's kind of like your two, and then look at cartridge forks. I don't even like to rebuild cartridge forks. Right. Well, now you're twin, twin chambers now. So you're, that's what I'm. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So I mean, yep. you know, I probably, um, you know, I, I'm the first one. I mean, it's that everybody wants that performance. Well, they want compliance. They want that total level of progressivity. They want that bottoming level, you know, mm-hmm. uh, resistance capability. And then it almost they want that resistance to fade. You know what I mean? They right. and and that dictates the technology, right? A lot of times that that requirement or customer expectation for performance and a lot of it comes you know you have a production regulation now you used to be able to you had a work spike and then your production bike could have a simpler level it kind of had the same image yeah. as some of the works race equipment but it could be cheaper and simpler right 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 but you know you're selling stuff to the average customer that is what ricky and bubba and and you know, yeah, it's what those guys demand. So, uh, in a broader scheme of things, is the was the production rule that brought in 1986 was that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, uh, it's hard to say. it's hard to say. I would say that um, you know, I would say that the factories did not, and it's it's crazy to say this, but uh, uh, there's a couple different. 
ideas I have about that. One is the factories were not doing a very good job at limiting their own spending. Right. And it was almost like they couldn't even afford to keep the Even Honda, I don't even think Honda, there was a recession in the middle of the 80s. Mm-hmm. They could not afford. It was corporate war, and they all had egos out of control. But, and, it, and it just got to where, I mean, we had equipment that cost a lot of money. I yeah. think all the factories did, and it just got to be, I mean, you're not selling dirt bikes to support that, so it was more for right. image, and it was more for ego, and it was more maybe to create, you know, some kind of a, a position in the market to where people would buy all this other product. I'm not even sure, right? But, right. Um, you know, but on the other hand, the promoters always thought that production regulation, the, the reason that the top writers won was because they had all the special equipment. Is that, what, is that what they thought? I, yeah. That's, that, that, that's a bunch of bull, in my opinion. I agree. But that's that, that's true, though? The that's top, what they thought? The, yeah. the top guys, they get they get the good contracts. They get the they get the Roger and the Mitch and at one point in time, a day for what that was. <laughs> and, you know, they get that whole deal. They get the whole team structure. And the team. It's not even the equipment per se. It's the team's know-how for the setting of. It's not even a, a static. It's a di- dynamic. The, the the setting of the bike. The team that knows how to change the settings from Carlsbad to Southwick to mm-hmm. Supercross. But you know the whole. I think there was a lot of pressure from the promoters that if we go, if we. If we even today, I think in road racing, if we take all the factories out and all the top riders out and all the special equipment out, then it'll be like NASCAR, right? Right, right. So I don't know. I don't believe that. And from a standpoint too, that a rider on a motorcycle, on a motocross bike, is probably about 70% of the total performance. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in NASCAR, and there's some really good drivers, but they're not 70% of the total performance, right? Right, right. So, you know, they can pull on the steering wheel and lean and all that as much as they... they got big wavos for sure, yeah. but they're not 70%. The crew chief and who's deciding when to change tires, and it, it also is a big factor. Yeah, well, when you're 50 years old, 50-something, like Mark Martin, and you're still yeah. winning, to me, that kind of takes away the athletic performance of the sport a little bit. That's exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. I mean, not, but like you said, credit, kudos to those guys. Um, yeah. Uh, so when you go to a Supercross now, Dave, I don't know if you go at all, but what's your thoughts? Uh, Factory Yamaha doesn't have a team, and there's naked girls, and... You know, yeah. hey, you know what's you know what's kind of funny about this is uh, uh-huh. now I'll get in trouble with the wife when I go home. But uh, you know, Roger and I, uh, you know, uh, I for me personally, in the eighties, you know, I don't think the sport was really marketed, or I really thought the promotion of mm-hmm. the sport could be quite a bit better. And I remember seeing Rocky one or two, and remember the girls that came out with all the glitter and yeah. then and then holding up the cars and then they could barely walk. Remember all that? Yeah. And it was, of course, that was a, a Sylvester Stallone boxing movie, and 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 I would I would tease Roger not to be sexist or anything else, but I go if I was a promoter, that's exactly what I would do, right? Uh-huh. I would have them walking across the starting line at Glen Helen in high heels, and that I mean, my God, is that 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 dream was fulfilled, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're you're an innovator, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't have anything to do with it, but, right. no, but, but uh, from it. a standpoint of, uh, but on the other hand, there's a there's a tiny bit of sleaze. Like, uh, well, I don't know if motocross is ever a pure family sport, but now I'm like, mm-hmm. man, there's a lot of TNA going on, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, which is not all bad. I mean, you got to look at 
I'm not I'm not 20 years old either, man. When I was, and it's not that I don't like it now. I'm 56. You know, I mean, I'm uh-huh. not going to say I don't, I don't like going. But then when you're thinking about bringing your wife and kids, you're going, well, I I don't know if I'm going to go to the pits or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, but the other the other side I think of is um, I think the sport. I don't know. It's it's just different. I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I mean, because it's, it is different. You're I don't right, think yeah. the factories. I think the you know Honda put a lot in the motocross, the development, not only the development of the hardware, but the sport itself. I mean, to fund these big efforts in Europe and and in U.S. and to pay the riders' salaries and to pay the mechanics and have the shops and you know they're making an investment in the sport. It's I don't want to get all holier than thou about this, but I think the Japanese truly wanted the sport. You know, of course, maybe for selfish reasons, but also, you know, they wanted outside sponsors. They wanted, you know, I, I, right. I think they may not have known how that relationship was going to pan out with outside sponsors, but they wanted the sport to grow and get more, and that was only going to showcase their hardware, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that's what everybody wanted. Now, me, when you ask that question, I mean, the, the all I really... You know, the, the period that I was involved, the 70s and 80s and part of the 90s, where the focus was the hardware development, I mean, I really think I lucked out because that's truly what I got a, um, my enjoyment out of, you know, the challenge of development, um, developing a better mousetrap or more power or uh, mm-hmm. a better handling chassis or more dynamic balance and whatever it is, right? I mean, and, and to try to – it's still the rider's – 60%, but if your bike, nobody, I can say nobody tested more than us. I mean, right. every, I'm not not to be disrespectful, but there was a period of time in, in the 80s that nobody could have tested more than Honda and developed more. Right. Well, I don't know. Maybe made, you know, you learn by your mistakes, and, and we certainly, uh, yeah. we, we, you know, it's, and so I would say that the, the era where the 70s and 80s where we did all the development, I, I think that that was, I learned the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was the most personally gratifying for me. Right, right. And now, and now when I go now, the sport's different. I don't say it's you know, gosh, look at the monster, look at the, look at the happening, right? It's a social freaking happening, right? It's it a is. show. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that that's that's brought like increased level of exposure and publicity and. And it's a lifestyle thing now. I mean, I don't ever think it was a lifestyle before, right? Other than a bunch of gypsy guys, yeah, and you know, traveling around in box vans and and you know, parts flown in and out, and you know, yeah, I think we had more flexibility with the box vans to go testing quite a bit more while we were on the road. The right. relationship between management, mechanics, the technical guys, riders. I mean, we were pretty much all in the same bed together, right? Yeah, no. and I think that that's I think that that's quite a bit different nowadays with semi trucks and mm-hmm. you got an R and D guy in California or wherever the base is and and then he comes up with something the mechanic may or may not have been involved in that but he's got a bolt it on and then the right you know what I mean? Yep. Uh, I, I think that there's but that's just I'm not saying that's bad, it's just different. I mean you know um I, I kinda I I I'm really grateful that I was involved in the in the for the period I was involved in. Right, and he, yeah, and back then you just had Hannah glaring at all the spectators from the back of his box fan. <laughs> oh yeah, Jeez, oh, Pete. Um, we had. Uh, hey, what do you what do you uh, as an RD guy? Man, we're half hour in. We haven't even got to the racing and this stuff. Uh, but uh, say what? 
All right. I, I don't know if you were at a NASCAR race or not. <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I just heard I, I didn't say anything. I waited for that noise to go away. Oh, that was a VW. The guy was, like, chirping the wheels, drag racing. Somebody threw a stoplight here. Nice, so. nice. Um, uh, as an R&D guy, when you read the magazine tests of a bike that you've been developing for years and, and, and maybe they missed the mark on it, or how frustrating is it to read the magazine tests of these bikes? <laughs> you know, I think I think I think that uh, you know, I you know I was in racing, and there was a while I was in production development, mm -hmm. and you know, in racing there was you know these companies are big. Honda's bigger than most all these other companies, and right. even when you're in racing, you're you're man, you got it all figured out, and this works really good for Stanton, or or it works really good for John Michelle Bale, or Ricky Johnson, or or Jeremy McGrath, right? right. And then. You know, you go you go back to the guys that are developing production bikes, and they they kind of blow not blow it off, but they're going well. That's a special, much different than the average customer requirement. So right. they might give you some consideration, and you might have a, a a certain level of influence, but you certainly, you know, they have limitations of cost or something else. I mean, even the type of settings, and there's even legal issues that impact mm -hmm. settings of production bikes, right? right. Like, won't even get into it. But what if the guy bolts on the wrong? tire and you know it, it, it hits the plastic and you know what I mean yeah. all this tire clearance to plastic it's production bikes are slightly different than race bikes right um, but um, but in any case when we were winning races like and we had a pretty good streak going from 1981 to till 19, well Whenever through Jeremy, Jeremy and yeah. through Carmichael and, and not all those years did they win the magazine stuff so you know, I guess there was some pride that that in the good years and the lean years, we already we always were able to understand what we were given, what we had as a base, and where it needed to go to satisfy high level racers, right? And we had enough influence on the production process that at least as a base, we would get that. Whether or not that base had the perfect setting for the average customer, I mean, was almost immaterial to us then. I mean, of course. I, I would have liked for the company to win all the shootouts at the same time, but, um, yeah, you know, even now, and if they don't do it now, it's like, well, you know, if they would have asked me, I would, or, you know, you get in all that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but uh, you know, any, I, I'd have to say from a, I'm probably brainwashed and Honda loyal enough that anytime they're not winning races or, or winning magazine shootouts, it, it bothers me in some way, yes. Right, right. Okay, yeah. I, I know uh, talking to Rich about it, you know, he said some guys were completely clueless and yeah. some guys nailed it right on. He's like, it was yeah, really and, frustrating. And on, and on that note, and, and not that that was a self-serving comment from Rich, but Rich did a really good job. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's not up to one guy. It's almost up to even even a crew chief on a race team. I mean, a, a Roger, uh, you know, or a guy leading production development. I mean, it, you know, a Rich Taylor or a Roger, nobody, there's not one riding style that is the perfect riding style that's right. completely center of the market. There's not one opinion that is the best opinion. But, you know, it's it's your responsibility as a crew chief leading that development to, to I don't, I view the best crew chiefs 
that handle all those production bike development is not the guy that thinks he knows the most, mm-hmm. but the guy that that has that is able to. I call him a sponge, or I think of him as a sponge. He's able to take all that in, right. and he's able to factor a rich comment like, "Well, Rich Taylor, he's pretty good in all these areas except for his fork setting. There's no way the average guy would ever want something that stiff." And, right. I mean, you have to be right about that, but you have to kind of have a judgment about what you're willing to accept and not accept from a Rich Taylor or a Roger or anybody, right? Yeah. And then you end up with a good production bike. And sometimes the worst production development is when even companies, they go, you know, we're going to develop this new mousetrap, and theoretically it's going to do all this wonderful stuff, but what happens in that process? And maybe even Honda, you know, they go, you know, they're, they're looking at some, let's say like this new Yamaha, you said some people love and hate it. Sometimes when you look at those big developments that mass centralization, we're going to move the motor, you're looking at one aspect, but in reality, mm-hmm. and, and maybe theoretically it's better, and maybe even for the long run it's, it will evolve to be the superior technology, mm-hmm. but in the short run, you have to balance that out with, it's not all about having the, the most agile bike, it's got to be stable, it's got to be dynamically flat, it's got to be able to turn, it's got to be compliant, it's got it's got to it's got to jump flat, it's got you know what I mean? Right. It's got to do all those things. It can't do six of those things really good and four of those things really bad. Yeah, it's got to yeah. do right. all ten of them reasonably well, and that's the best setting. And sometimes when you're you know, Honda, you, you know you're 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 making these chains based on some theoretical. Um, statement mm-hmm. or direction, you know, sometimes it's pretty easy to miss that overall balance. Right, right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Now it's time to pay some bills. Thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike or body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at BTOsports.com. So, so yeah, I, I'm taking it the magazine stuff. Like Rich had an opinion, a strong opinion about the magazine tests. You're you're okay as a crew chief guy. You you take some hits and you realize it's kind of just part of the game, I guess. Well, I didn't develop those bikes. <laughs> I mean, uh, anyway, I, I'm over in auto, and I'm not that closely connected to the latest ones, and uh, so I'm not. But I mean, but, know, but even, Rich, it, Rich, Rich is probably more accurate opinion than I even have right at the well, moment. Well, I meant, but back in the ones that you did develop, you know, the ones that you did oh, work so, with. So yeah. your point was what then? Well, just like you, when you were working heavily with the R&D bike stuff, yeah. you uh, you didn't take the magazine test to heart, say, as much as Rich. You realized. No, I, no honestly, I really did. Oh, okay. And, All right. And, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, let's take a Jody, you know. Like, Jody's a very controversial person, and, and I've heard people go, well, Jody, he's in left field. You know what? Jody has a lot of, he's got a lot of background, and he's, everybody's got ego, you know, and I'm right. sure people would say, well, maybe Jody, you know, maybe he's got an exceptionally strong ego, but I look at it quite differently. I mean, I think it's our job to understand what, you know, Jody has a strong opinion. What is it that he likes and doesn't like, and how centered is that to the market, right? And right. and I won't say that like a Dave setting or a Jody setting, I mean, I won't say that any, if I set up the bike perfectly for me. I'm not saying that would be the best setting for mass production, but I still would respect Jody's opinion or any magazine editor, Rich Taylor, because as long as you understand 
Um, you know what I'm saying? You right. can do a better job next time of factoring that in. And then there's, there's yep. certain times where, you know, let's say I remember Jody was commenting about con- conventional forks. Well, there's a lot of things that conventional forks did better than even upside-down forks. Mm-hmm. But I still would not have taken that to heart because the market and all the other demands on the bikes, whether it be um, torsional rigidity or whether it be um, bump impact, you know I mean? You can argue that standpoint from a vet. The right standpoint of a guy that's 50, 55 years old, right? And, and fatigue's a bigger issue. But you, but if you look at the bikes targeted for a higher, medium, higher level motocross guy, right? And Carmichael's not going to race with conventional forks, right? Right, right. So I, I think you just have to understand where the comment's coming from. And I think you have to uh, respect all input, good. I'm not going to say there is any good and bad input. You just have to know just, yeah. what, what the biases are and where the stuff is coming from. Right, right. Yeah, I did one of these with Ross Maeda, and, you know, he swears that you can get conventionals to work as good as upside downs, but it was just a marketing thing, and, and you know, um, you know. So. From, what, from what standpoint? I mean, from a Ross standpoint, again, I mean, Ross is yeah. at Ross's level. Now, again, I, I don't even believe it was a pure marketing standpoint. Um, I, at the end of the day, yeah, yes, there's pressure, and there's always new gadgets and all right, that stuff, right? right? But... At the end of the day, that was a nice Corvette that just drove by, 62. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the day, Carmichael probably would, would have raced, and Jeremy, with whatever fork. He could have chosen, chosen whatever fork he wanted for that bike. Right. Maybe he would have got a little bit of static, but if he really could have gone around the track faster with conventional forks. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Another aspect, once, once riders got used to the bottom of the fork leg not dragging in the rut, I mean, Jeremy wouldn't even race conventional forks. Right. So yep. it depends on, of course, there's a lot of things that conventional forks did better, and there's a bunch of things that didn't do as good. But the whole evolution of the bikes, I mean, I mean, if it's just a trend, it would have been a short-lived trend, right? right People right. would have come back. I mean, it's not purely a marketing ploy that Honda, yeah, you this, know, at this was, point, it's right. not purely that. It's 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 actually it's like this thing I said about let's say let's say the whole Yamaha thing with that mass centralized engine, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are you right now going to say that that's not good? It's too soon, right? Right, right. I mean, that look at how much evolution has gone into. All, look at the hours of racing and testing and the evolution of the current motocross bike, and then they do something like that. I mean, it almost people expect for those technical developments to produce black and white results, right? Right. And it's that's almost unrealistic. This stuff is so refined that even if you, even if there was, uh, I think I think even some of the benefits of uh, of the Yamaha, whether it be you know, the, if, the, if the mass is more centralized, which I believe it is, and they're able right. to change direction. But let's say the engine hanger ties to the chassis a little bit different. Let's say the chassis rigidity is different. Let's say the weight bias, you know what I mean, all that stuff. Let's say the yeah. CG, you know, and then you might have to go back and compensate for some of that stuff for it to be ultimately, uh, for, for it to even realize its full potential, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's why. And, I, I, and, uh, and it, you know, and to expect Yamaha, now to expect Yamaha to have done that in, in a production 
development process without work spikes, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's a negative of not having work spikes. It's almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not out there with the top guys, do, and then every week coming with a new chassis or engine hangers or changing the weight. By, I mean, look at look at what they look how tied their hands were, and they still tried something big out of the box. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Good point. It's not, you know, don't oversimplify how, you know. Do you remember when Cannondale and everybody goes, oh, Cannondale, they know how to make aluminum frames, and I'm not bagging on Cannondale, but I think if you went back and talked to anybody in that off the dirt bike development process of Cannondale, they probably all of them would have said, I mean, theoretically, all that stuff sounded great, right? right Fuel injection, yeah. turn it around. There, yeah. In reality, the thing kind of flopped, and why was that? Because I think they oversimplified how high, what the performance of current mass production motocross bikes that coming out of Japan actually is. Yeah, it's it's crazy, too, when you think about the fact, like, when Yamaha introduced its aluminum frame on the two-strokes in yeah. 05, you know, we were told as mechanics that it had the exact same characteristics as the steel frame. Everything measured out, everything was the same, but, well, guess what? We got on the track, hey, and, hey, and it wasn't. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard almost same? What's that? Have you ever heard, <laughs> after those guys say it's exactly the same, have yeah. you ever heard them say, well, well, it's almost the same? Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that almost thing is sometimes um, those almost gaps almost, are pretty big. Yeah, almost as a point of view, right? Um, yeah. But, you know, so the riders struggled with it, and we ended up, you know, there was webbing on the inside of the frame and outside of the frame with the cones, yeah. the aluminum frame cone. We put, like, super thin sheets of aluminum over some of yeah. those cones and welded them shut. Yeah, and you would not believe the difference that made. It made it yeah. in a negative way. Okay, it didn't work out. But yes. every rider we had three of them that got on that bike was like, "This thing sucks." And I was yeah. blown away by the fact that a tiny piece of aluminum welded in a few spots yes. to close those cages up would affect the bike that much. And it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's uh, it is how sensitive these things are. Like, yeah. where the chassis flex, how much they flex. I'm not. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert. I mean, there's all these really deep level specialized engineers that right. are involved with car, these um, engine management systems or carburetion systems or or engi- you know engine cylinder castings or frames. But I mean, I've seen engineers come over here and grind on gussets and drill holes in gussets, and mm-hmm. and you're looking at that going, "Give me a break, right?" Right. But but like you say, it it. Uh, you know, there's a saying that as soon as you think you know it all, you really don't. And <laughs> um, and and there's a lot to those, that, all of that. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, for Yamaha, like you said, for Yamaha to develop that bike in the age of no works bikes is amazing because of all those yes. changes, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. and, and there isn't a team out there that doesn't play with motor uh, hangers and uh, motor brackets and raising lower them and changing the thickness, and that makes a big difference. Yeah. And it's just That's crazy right. to think about such a small stuff and how it plays into effect, and you know, right. you're kind of the guy back then to, to think about all that stuff. So, right. Um, but anyways, let's let's we 47 minutes and we haven't even talked about your racing career. Uh, <laughs> so, well, mine, mine's pretty simple. I uh, I didn't do it. I wasn't. I, I came up from a family of seven, and everybody was academically smart except for my younger brother and I. And then we ended up going to a trade school because we, we, we you know, we bombed out. We were whatever side of your brain works for academic didn't work for us. Yeah. So uh, 
And I went to a trade school after college because all I could think about was riding dirt bikes. And then I wanted to work and learn about dirt bikes. And mm-hmm. then I started working as a Honda mechanic in dealerships for three or four dealerships. And is this in Southern California? And then it wasn't, Are you born and, and raised? Wasn't, say again? Are you born and raised in SoCal? Is this Southern California? Yeah, I'm actually at the house I was born and raised at. I'm taking care of my 96 uh, year old father today. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, uh, and so uh, I've got a I've got a poster, um, or what is it? It's something. One of the piece of the snow fence from the Carlsbad. I think it was a Grand Prix in 1973. <laughs> up and up, still stapled up in the garage. Nice, nice. Uh, Hang ten or something. Hang ten USDP. Right, right. So, okay. So, how'd you get the job at Honda? So my instructor from trade school, he, he, he thought he had two, um, not star students, but he had two guys that he thought would be a good fit to manufacturers. And he, his name was Pat Owens. He actually used to work at Triumph out at, uh, I think it's Johnson Motors out in the other side of Pasadena. Mm-hmm. He was a service manager involved in dirt track. So he was kind of a race team connected guy. And so then he placed some of his somewhat star students. Mark Porter was one of them. Oh yeah, for a good good friend of mine, and we went to school together. We were buddies. We oh, dirt track and motor. Mark Porter and I were yeah. We went to trade school together. Mark Porter is a great guy. He's a great guy. He's always a good one guy. One of my favorites. Yeah. He's in, and I I tell uh, I tell everybody I work with you know that if they you know that if they don't hold up. Uh, they're into the deal at Honda. I'm like, oh, man, I'm telling you, the guy at Yamaha, man, they're not sleeping today, and I know one of them. Yeah, yeah, really. Huh? Um, but, yeah. When you guys sit around a beer, how hard is it to drink some beer? How hard is it for neither one of you to tell each other what's going on? <laughs> no, you know, I mean, of, of course, he's got to be ethical, and I've got to be ethical, but there's pretty, there's a deep friendship there, and not yeah. that we see each other or talk all the time, but right. we go back, we go way, way, way back, and, uh, uh, you know, I've had, I did something for Pat Owens last year. I brought some Honda Heritage vintage bikes out to one of his um, mm-hmm. events he was having, and Mark Porter showed up, and oh, it's yeah. pretty easy for us to bench race about. I bet about bikes, and you know he's an enthusiast. He he was racing a Boltaco, I was racing a BSA, and uh, he's a good rider. I'm telling you, I was. Oh, okay. I was probably a little bit better motocross guy, knock on wood, and he was a way better dirt track guy than I was flat track guy. Wow, I didn't. The things you didn't, the things you don't know about Mark Porter. Oh no, yeah. telling you, Porter's a good rider. He's remember at Saddleback when he used to have the uh, Widowmaker, whatever that was, the big hill climb. Yeah, the Suicide he, Hill. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to have remember the big uh, the board and everybody had their name. There wasn't that uh, many guys on there, and he, I, he used to be one of them. I never went to Saddleback before. I was grew up in Canada, so I just yeah. read it in the magazines. Oh. Yeah, but. But anyway, Porter got placed at Yamaha, yep. and uh, I did an interview at Yamaha with that. At that time, the uh, race team manager was Kenny Clark. Yep. And uh, it was for Mike Hartwig, I think a guy out of Michigan. And he had to interview five guys. I was one of them mm-hmm. because Pat Owens recommended me, and Mark had already been placed there. And then there was Dudak and a bunch of guys internally at Yamaha. And he ended up hiring a really good guy, uh, uh, Dudak. Is it uh, yeah. John uh, Dudak? Yeah. Right. And so he ended up being Hartwig's mechanic. So then I stayed working at dealerships. And then the next racing thing that opened up, Honda was expanding their effort. And uh, so then I did an interview there. And I remember the interview was the best. Well, I've never done a resume, but they they wanted me just for a shop mechanic because they had a group of uh, seven riders 
it was Marty Smith and Staten and McDougal and Bauer and uh, I think Mickey Bone and retired stat. Yeah, I'm probably forgetting somebody, but. but. I had to rebuild all the practice bikes, and so they threw a transmission in front of me, and they said, okay, put it together, all the shims and clips, and of course, you worked on XL, Hondas, and CR, well, it was Elsinore's at the time, Hondas, and so I could do that, so then they hired me, and I was the shop guy. And that was it. For, huh. no, for, yeah, right away, next week. I couldn't believe you could get, actually, a salary, because <laughs> everything I did at the dealership was on commission. Right, right. And then I was like, man, I mean, I got to work my ass off because they're going to give me a check no matter what, and I don't want them to think they're getting cheated, you know? Yeah, yeah, funny. And what, so, year, what year would this have been, Dave? What year was it? That was 70, 70, uh, 74. 74, okay. Then, then there was a couple guys that got injured that uh, that I started working with on the national circuit. Um, John Rosesteel was a mechanic at the time. Roy Turner was a mechanic at the time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this big truck came off the, the national circuit, was going to go off of the Trans Am, and then they go, okay, you're going to work on Billy Grossi's bike for the support class of the Trans Am. And uh-huh. So I, ran, I went out and did that right before he went to Suzuki. Right. Sugar Bear. So then that was in 74. Then in uh, 75, I worked on Rich Irestad's bike for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Pierre Carsmaker was on the team. You know, so they had, a, they had a big turnaround. So I was on the national circuit. And then they had a deal in um, 76. So, you know, and then, you know, I was still kind of working with all the riders for practice bikes and race bikes and, yeah, you know, in wherever, whatever, whatever, you, whatever they were do, using. Yeah. And then, anyway, Marty and I got hooked up for the 76 season, but he was the reigning 125 national champion, mm-hmm. and John R. was in the 125 class, and John R. was his mechanic. And um, so then I was like, there's no way I want the number one guy. I mean, I just don't. I didn't <laughs> I'm marry not, I'm not, not ready for I'm this. brand new here. Right. I just, I'd rather not, you know. And yeah. John R. was like, no, you just got to keep the bike together, and Marty wins every day. You don't even got to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first race I went to was Hangtown, and not only did we break down, but Hannah beat us both motos. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. So wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was great. I had, I've, I've been scarred for life still to this day. It's, it affected me. Hey, when John, R., when John R. told you that, was he rubbing his face down with Windex on a rag? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he's my hero. John R is my hero, and I tell him that all the time. And and he's, I'd say he's humble enough that he he doesn't like to hear it. But he's really one of my. I think John R and Cliff White are the best mechanics in the industry. John, I worked with John R at Yamaha. My when I was there, yeah. uh, he, I actually yeah. he retired. I think my second year I was there. But uh, I, yeah, I, I was I was probably credited for maybe being creative or trying a lot of stuff and cutting chassis up and mm-hmm. moving shocks and I'd want to do all the big developments but those two guys are so meticulous I, I never had uh, I never had that level of patience I mean <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, I can tell you their bikes when they went to the line I mean that's as close to perfection as you're ever going to get yeah yeah and it's and, and but it was funny because in, in the suspension world when I worked with John R he was one of those guys where like he was like it doesn't matter dude just turn to throttle like he well, he didn't try to outsmart yeah, himself. Like he yeah. knew, he kind of knew. I, you know, I, I would, I would say, I would say that uh, I don't know how he is as a, as a development guy. I didn't really work with him in that capacity. I mean, right. he was 
just starting to do suspension stuff in the 70s, and he was trying to make the Showa stuff work, and I was kind of just taking the stuff off and right. and, and, and not using it, throwing it in the trash, and I'd be running the Girlings, or I'd be running the Marazachis or the KYBs, and, uh-huh. you know, Showa, you know you know how all these Japanese companies, they have all their Kurtitsku or their vendors, and mm-hmm. the Showa, you know, Honda had Showa, they had Kihin for carburation instead of Makuni, and then they had, but the Showa stuff didn't work for a lot of years until it worked really, really good. Right. But in the year, you know, I worked with John R. when he was trying to, to what are they, he was trying to make stuff that really wasn't engineered very well. Really high quality stuff, but just not engineered very well. And right. And he was already it was just into it. Some, yeah. It was the beginning years of Showa, you know, trying to develop that technology in motocross, and there was a learning curve. Right. So, okay, so you're working with Marty, and this kid named Bob Hanna comes up, and, I mean, it was supposed to be pretty... Well, it was, Pretty, it was so it was it was uh it was Bob against Marty. I mean I didn't like Bob then. I mean I I, I you know, not that I didn't respect the other top racers. I mean I I idolized DeCoster. I mean I thought every time I, I just mesmerized when I watched Roger come over and race the Trans Am and I was like, Oh my god, you know, I mean I couldn't even hardly watch the bike I was working on. Right, right, there he is. And and, and you know, but Roger would come around, I mean Marty beat Roger in a few Trans Am races and you know we would, Roger would come over and congratulate you. I mean, he was always kind of a class act where Bob, I always just thought he was a cocky little shit. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, he but, did. Uh, uh, yeah, he, but I, I mean, ultimately, Bob ended up later in years, you know, after he was kind of over maybe his peak, and but he still had a lot of races to win, and he had a huge fan base. And I hired Bob uh, in the early 80s. Roger and I kind of lobbied for him. Yeah, 83. Just because he had that piss and vinegar attitude that we were trying to, we, you know, Bailey and O'Mara, we had enough talent, but uh, we, were, we, we, were, we wanted that gunfighter mentality in the team, so. Well, yeah, but, but uh, from people I talked to, like Bob Oliver at Yamaha, I mean, in, when you, in, Hannah in 83 was yeah. the fastest guy. He just got yeah. hurt. He, apparently, yeah, they, I, I mean, I was a yeah. kid, but he was by far the best guy that year, and he, and it's, it's a kind of a travesty. He never won a title for Honda, but he was blazing yeah. Fast, right? Uh, he helped. He helped Honda win quite a few titles. It just didn't have his name on him. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. Unfortunately, I didn't have to put out a sign that said "Let Brock buy," and that's right. not a slam against McCarty. But I mean, yeah. the companies wanted to win. Right. And Bob, Bob was one of the best guys they have. Unfortunately for Bob, we called him, we nicknamed the Brittle Bob. I mean, that guy would break bones at that period of time without even falling off his motorcycle. Oh, really? But yeah. he was the fastest guy. And then at the end of the series, he'd be helping. And uh, I don't know how many times Bailey, you know, I'm like, Bob, I mean, you're coming back, Millville, Minnesota, last race of the year, I need, I'm going to need your help. And right. he'd write down a list of all of his sponsors, and he's, you know, and here's what happens if I win, and this is what you're going to pay me, and uh, <laughs> you tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And he says I still owe him some of that money, and I swear I think I paid him. But. Uh, was it true that after he let Bailey buy at Millville, he just rode off into the woods? Is that true? Um, I guess I heard that story. Who knows if uh, it's true? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, you know what Bob did? I I had a sign at that race, and I was like, "Come on, you know." And he right. was pulling away, and he pulled away, and it was like, "Come on, you know." Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's something maybe John Michelle Bale would have done, but not Bob. I mean, right. we had a deal, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then in the last turn, in the last lap, before the checkered, I'd already written him off as winning. He drops his bike. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and, and he gets up slowly, and he tucks his jersey in, and he's redoing his kidney bill. I mean, he makes it obvious to everybody there that, yeah. that he's still in the race for Bailey, right? Right, right, right. And, you know, so he made his point, but, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. I don't know about riding into the hills. I honestly don't remember him being that pissed about anything as long as, as, long as he got paid. As long as he got paid. Uh, yeah, I mean, just from the guys I talked to, those years, at, early years at Honda, he was blazing fast. He just got hurt. You know, he, he was wanted, blazing yeah. fast. Yeah. Blazing fast. Um, yeah. So let's let's go back. I mean, I mean, more more of an outdoor than Supercross, but still. Yeah. Let's let's rewind a bit. When you were Marty's mechanic, Marty Smith's mechanic, one of the most more incredible feats that doesn't get talked about enough, I think, is the fact that Marty did the 125 Nationals and the 125 GPS in one year, flying back and forth yeah. in the days of traveling when it wasn't easy. Um, what was that like? I think there's three things when I think of Marty. One is I don't think there was ever a bad picture of Marty Smith ever. I mean, that guy had the best style, so naturally talented, gifted. I mean, even, yeah, you know, I don't think he ever had the, I don't think he trained like Hannah. I don't think he had the drive like Hannah, but, I mean, he never had to before Hannah. I mean, Marty was just a natural, and his idea of, I mean, there was, we'd be, we'd, we'd, Finished a national that in, in '76, and he's like, "Dude, just you know, you want to go testing? I got suspension. Olin's guy, we can do this." And he's like, "Yeah, you can go ride my bike. You know what I like? Go ahead and you fix it up, and it'll be fine." You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. And uh, but but I would say um, that whole European thing was a gross error on Honda's part. I would think that. Oh yeah. I mean, really? it's all they had, and, and and of course they wanted to to get some recognition or. or I think it was just a it was naivety. Um, it was naive for Honda to think that you know that a guy like Marty. I mean, not only did Marty not like Europe very much because it didn't have ice and the Coke and Baskin Robbins ice cream and girls. You know, he didn't like it. I mean, it wasn't right. San Diego. Yeah, yeah. Marty liked San Diego, and so that was probably <laughs> one misjudgment. That was a big deal. He didn't like going over there. He wasn't happy when he was there, and right. he didn't like the way people talked to him. And you know, they didn't idle. They didn't. Yeah. They, they didn't praise him like they did here. You know, they didn't. Um, and then, and then the other thing was our bike worked here in the states. The Hondas were very lightweight, very light switch fast, but. You know, smooth tracks, right? I mean, right. mid-Ohio and stuff. If you go to Europe, oh, my God, the bikes, the power bands, the Suzuki's were better. They were Everybody had reed valves, and they had broader power bands, and they had mm-hmm. longer travel, and they had stiffer chassis, and they had equipment that was developed for that for those racetracks. Our bikes fell apart in Europe. Yeah, he's, That was the other thing. He so mentioned I, that. I would say yeah. that that was a misjudgment on our part to think that he could actually handle all that travel and be mm-hmm. effective trying to race whole championships. But, it was, um, but it's pretty amazing. One. But it's pretty amazing that a guy did that. Right? It's pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah, you uh, know. Although you were there, you were more probably. Well, you know, John R. John R. was in Europe, and probably the best story I have of that year was that, uh, you know, on had John R. went to Europe. I was his mechanic here in the states, mm-hmm. and uh, Marty really liked the the. But you know, he didn't. It was the first year that Honda had a um, reed valve engine that was called the Type 1. They had that in um, Europe. Mm-hmm. But still, it had a lot of power, but it was a real short power. And Marty was a real, you know, 125, an over-rev kind of a guy, right? right? Where in the bumps where it didn't fall out of the power, the bike would pop a lot. And uh, Marty really liked the engine that he won the championship on in 74 and 75, which had a case reed engine very similar to what Suzuki came out with the first RMs. Mm-hmm. So... 
in any case, you know, he was getting beat in the States, and he was getting beat in Europe, and then he really wanted me to build a bike that had that old motor in it. So we did, and, and of course, I had, I had Donnie Emler did the cylinder and made the pipe. I had all this freedom. Nobody was really looking. All the engineers, the Japanese engineers were in Europe. And we, Emler put this big giant carb on it and had this big flipper cone pipe and poured the cylinder. And <laughs> I did all the chassis work. I had girlings in the back and I had Morizachi forks in, in Showa um, outer, outer uh, stanchions in the front. Yeah. And, um, and Marty was like, even when he was in Europe, he was telling me, like, oh, is that bike done? The bike done? He really wanted to ride that bike. It hadn't even been tested. It had not been tested before mid-Ohio. Right. So he comes here for the Grand Prix, and he... And he, and he goes out and practice. All the engineers are there. And, yeah. of course, I'm like, hey, I got the bike there, but it's a token. I mean, I don't want him to ride the bike. If it yeah, ever yeah. broke, I mean, that'd be my last race. <laughs> and uh, so he goes out on the, the bike he'd been racing in Europe. I, and not even, didn't even give it a one lap, two laps, all muddy. Comes in, is like gets on his bike that we built, and, and he's happy. Comes in, yeah, things great. So that was it, right? Change the jetting a little bit, or I don't know what. Right. And uh, and he goes out there and wins both motos against Gaston Rayer and Hannah. So I remember some, one of the engineers looking at the bike after the race, and he's doing a race report like you've seen him do, right? Yeah. You know, what gearing and yeah. what jetting. And there wasn't one thing that was a Honda that he put on the race report, right? <laughs> I mean, because the engine was modified, the Emmer, pipe wasn't Emmer Japan had a HRC. F- 40 millimeter and carb on it or whatever. The, no, my, we, had a, we had a magnesium carb off a of 250, which was a 37 millimeter oval bore. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, everybody was running, you know, everybody running like a 30 or a 32, right? Right, right. <laughs> anyway, that was, uh, I, I was so scared the bike was going to break. And, you know, but anyway, I remember the guy doing the race report. And mm-hmm. he's, I remember him saying it's not even a Honda. <laughs> uh, uh, did you did you work for Marty when he won the 500s? I did. You did? And uh, that that uh, was a close race between him and Hannah. Yeah. Came down to Gainesville, Florida, and Hannah's throttle cable came out of the slide. Oh, McCarty. And uh, oh, it wasn't any fault of McCarty. I mean, it was... Uh... And then, ironically, that same year, Marty was much more dominant in the 250 class, but broke a transmission in, I believe, uh, Redbud, Michigan, mm-hmm. and Tony DeStefano won the championship. And if you ask him to this day, that's probably the, the, the thing he feels cheated or robbed the most. He wanted that bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did one of these with him, and I believe that's yeah. exactly what he said. He said he, he yeah, it was he wanted best, that. Yeah. He wanted to win the 250, and uh, he was majorly bummed. There was another championship that Tripes almost won. I mean, you know, later in the 70s when maybe we weren't the dominant team. Well, we weren't the dominant team, but Tripes came back and almost won a Supercross series, and it was a 78 or 79, and he broke a transmission at the Coliseum. And I remember both those guys to this day; they've never forgotten it. Like right. they, they, so. typical ride. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after Marty, what did you do after you wrapped up working for? Well, him? you know, Marty. Marty got injured late in the seventies. Mm-hmm. In seventy nine. Um, he broke really. He broke his pelvic bone in the Coliseum and got run over. Yes. And it was a really bad deal. It took him a long crash. time to get him off the track. And yep. I think that was the end of a, com- a, f- a competitive racing. I mean, Marty still raced a few more years. Yeah. But Marty, that, there was a lot of pain associated with that injury, and he was in the hospital. It was dislocated for a long period of time, and. I whether or not physically he was ever the same, but I think even emotionally, mentally, yep. I don't think Marty ever wanted to put himself in a position of being in in that situation again. Right. So then, you know, Honda was getting serious about bad time.
commitment for Marty, but then in the 80, they were going to have a 10-year commitment for full engineering works by development across. Right. And, uh, and so then, you know, Marty and Hanna were going to part ways because they were hiring, like, a whole new fleet of riders. I think that I don't even I, I have no idea how the negotiations went. I don't think that Honda wanted Marty to go away, but he got a better deal somewhere else. Suzuki, I but I ended, I ended up uh, knowing that he was going to go somewhere else, and and uh, Japan had kind of a secret test with Roger. Even though he was kind of over the hill, they wanted Roger to help lead development folks and mm-hmm. and uh, and help mentor some of the young guys for Europe, Malherb and Graham Noyce, and help development of ProLink and and. Uh, HPP, no, well, HPP wasn't around yet, but but cartridge forks were, and you know, water cooling and all that stuff, right? Right. And uh, I, I wanted, I mean, I idolized Roger, and I'm not trying to be a groupie here because he's a very, very good friend. But I, you know, it's it's a weird thing to say, but even when I love the image of Roger over here racing the Trans Ams and all the other Europeans there, there was Ben Alberg and. Sylvan came a couple of years, and, you know, there was all those guys, Gaston, I mean, not Gaston, but, uh, um, Joel, Joel, yeah, um, huh? Robert, and, yeah, 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 there was, there, yeah, 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 but even, even after that, you know, Sylvan Gabor's came for a few years, and, and Ben Alberg, and all these, tor- oh, man, it was great. And they would just, yeah, and, they, and they would just, anyway, and they would just I, whack I didn't, you guys, I didn't even like it, even though I was working for Marty, and at least Marty was a gracious guy. Marty right. was always a class act. Marty uh-huh. never rubbed anything in your face. I mean, he was the most likable guy that ever dominated racing. And uh, But, you know, I never even liked Hannah and Roger beating, I mean, Hannah and Smitty beating Roger. I mean, because I knew it would, it would just be the end of the era that the Europeans wouldn't come over here as soon as the Americans were winning their own championships. That was it, right? So, yeah, yeah. And then, so his last year of racing was going to be 1980, and he was going to be on a hunt, and I like, I, uh, I don't know if grovels or begs, I don't know which one's more accurate, but I was like, Roger, I'll do anything to work on your bikes in Europe. And I probably had the most seniority and yeah. any, anyway. So you did a whole year there in 1980. I went to Europe. I went to Europe with Roger. I lived in his house with him for half. That was the best year I ever had in racing was Roger's mechanic. Nothing. I mean, really? I shouldn't say that because the whole Marty and I, we had a great run in the 70s and uh-huh. a great relationship. And But it's like being in Europe and experiencing and all the travel in all the different countries, and right, right. and and it was just heroin as far as working on motorcycles. I mean, mm-hmm. the development. I mean, there was no corporate. There was a workshop in his garage, and Roger was there with me. I mean, we'd be there twelve o'clock, one two in the morning, and I'm going, isn't this guy racing the next day? I mean, he, right. he's nuts, you know. And and I mean, I have to, I guess. I, you know, he's a very dedicated, hard-driving, hard-working guy, and I'd like to think that um, I was somewhat the same, and I, I had a great time working with him in Europe. Well, even even the Suzuki guys say that he's, you know, he's leaving for KTM, by the way. I don't know if you heard that news. Yeah, but, I know that. I know uh, that. Uh, but even the Suzuki guys said on the mill and the lathe, he's a master. He can come up with stuff. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they tease him. I go in, they, they let me, I don't know why, they, some of the Japanese executives let me go in and say hi and go in the truck and yeah. he's always doing his little MacGyver acts right he's <laughs> putting little riveting things on the air box and fixing this and that he's very um, handy so yeah you wonder and he was, and he, and he was then I mean yeah. I couldn't cut threads on a lathe I mean I kind of jerry-rigged a lot of stuff on a mill and a lathe but yeah. 
here there was a writer that would cut his own threads. I'm like, give me a break. I can't even do that. And I'm the mechanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It'd be like watching, yeah. when I worked for a writer, it'd be like watching him adjust the valves in a force curve. Exactly. Um, exactly. Chad Reed's not doing that. Uh, no, he uh, What about, and you won a GP. You won, he won the final GP of his career that year. That was he should have won, too. Oh, he should have yeah. won the one just before that, which uh-huh. was in um Did you let him down, Dave? Did you let him down? Did you let him down, Dave? (laughs) You know what? He broke down, and I don't think I've ever forgiven myself. I don't think. I want to believe I didn't let let him down, but it was a... Namur, if you, if, I don't think they even have it anymore, but no, it was in don't. Belgium, so it was his home country, right. and he was hauling ass. And it's, it's a lot of riders are scared of Namur because it goes through the trees, it's really high speed, and right. it's kind of very dangerous, actually. Yep. And then it's in the center of town, and it pops up on top of this hill, and there's a cafe up there in a, in a soccer field. And, yeah, yeah. But uh, he was leading, and he got water in the carburetor and the, and the slide stuck and he still tried to keep it going and uh-huh. uh, anyway I don't know there were, there were actually I'll fess up there there was a part we had for extreme conditions it was a little rubber booty that went on the top of the carburetor mm-hmm. that I did not have on my carburetor and uh, uh-huh. I've never I've never let myself live it down uh-huh. to this day way to cost but the GP win <laughs> that, yeah so he BNF'd and uh and then the, the, he went out, the, which was tricky. The last, the last race in Luxembourg, you know, it was it was a championship still between um, Lackey and Maller, the Belgian guy. Roger was helping Maller a lot. I mean, Roger was really tutoring Maller to win the title. Right. I mean, he was trying to help Noyce, but Noyce had the English thing going on. I don't think he was quite as close to Roger, the Belgian thing, as well, wasn't, for sure Maller was. Wasn't Maller kind of a dick, though? Or I guess not to Roger, right? Because it's Roger DeCoster, but apparently he was infamous for being really hard to work with. No? Uh, you know, Bale could be accused of that. Maller, <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody always says that about the French in general, right? And I think it depends on the individual. You know, I mean, people used to say that about Europeans, but I, I, don't, I don't remember anybody that raced against Roger that thought he was a dick, right? Except right. for Hannah, because Hannah, yeah. you know, he thought everybody was stealing his money. Right, right, right. But, but, uh, but I, I don't know, Mallard? No, Mallard was never, he was a very class guy. I don't oh, know, okay. I, never, I never had that impression. Now, Bale uh, was different. Bale had a lot of guys that didn't think he was warm and fuzzy. Yeah, we'll get to Bale. But now, again, on a personal level, Bale, I've never done more with a rider. I mean, we would go bowling. We would go out to dinner. We'd be on any. But on when it came to a career in racing, I mean, he was. I don't know, self-centered. Um, uh, but Bale, oh man, he was a he was. He was a handful. You know what was funny was I had Bale. I did one of these with Bale. It was one of my favorite ones I've ever done. I got a hold of yeah. him when he was at Roger's house like a year ago. Yeah. And yeah. I got Stanton on the line, and we did a three-way. Oh no! We did a three-way call, and get this, they both acted like they loved each other. <laughs> hey, hey, uh, I'll make a statement. It's because because Stanton, um, you know, a couple things happened. Stanton retired at 25 years old. Do you right. know that? Yeah, I know. Oh, super young. And, I thought 26, and, but yeah. And I, uh, you know, Bale, Bale was freaking. Bale was a. He was naturally, naturally gifted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't need to say that. The guy had more talent than maybe anybody ever. Right. But, uh, but. You know, you know, we would go out early. I said that about all this testing. I mean, Stanton, if we came out, we were going to test before Southwicker. I mean, Stanton was always there, and he would train more. And yeah. him and O'Mara and Bailey, they would eat better. And they would, you know, they were religious. They were like the Pope, right? Right. And, and Bale... 
feet Twinkies in front of Stanton, and he would, you know, Dale mm-hmm. didn't like to do all the testing, and he, he didn't like people messing with his regime, which was get on a perfectly prepared bike from Cliff White and win races, you know. And and that guy was a smart, he was a talented racer, but an unbelievably, um, Stop. I don't know how Stubborn? to say it. I mean, I mean, he could orchestrate a race, so the guy could read a race. I mean, yeah. he would be in the middle of the race and look at the guys up front, and the guys in the back, okay, maybe the fifth, maybe the 11th lap I'll make my move, you know. I mean, he, Dale was incredible. Yeah. But, Bale, in my opinion, was the reason that Stanton retired early because there was so much tension in that team. Yeah, you could have cut it. You couldn't. You couldn't have cut it with a chainsaw. And then, and and I mean, and 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 Jeff, you know, Jeff was. Uh, he didn't have Bale's, but I mean, Jeff. Jeff was a hard. He trained more, and he tried hard. He rode with his heart, right? He didn't. You know what I mean? He didn't necessarily ride with that. Manipulative, freaking calculating, mischievous, freaking all right. interior motive like Bale, you know. Yeah. Well, and then Bale admitted on the show that, you know, a lot of that drinking Coke and eating Kit Kats was done on purpose in front of Jeff. Everything, but, everything yeah. was done on purpose with Bale. Right, everything. Right, right. There was not one thing that was not calculated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, ter- I'm thoroughly convinced that, uh, I mean, that guy was, I mean, I got to be where when the guy would call me, it was never what it, I thought the phone conversation was. Literally on the phone, I'd have to go, now, what is this really going to turn into? And how am I going to get jacked up on the deal? What's he getting I mean, to here? Yeah, exactly. And then, I uh, mean, he was, he was manipulative. I mean, he could control what I was going to do and stand. I mean, he was a little bugger. And, and Dan Bentley and Cliff were going at it. And, Man, I'm telling yeah. you, they, those guys were about ready to fight each other. I know. I heard the stories. And then, like, uh, I, I hired a guy, a mechanic. Ron Heaven. Right. And not that he's not a good guy, not that he's not a good mechanic, but I hired him purely to break the ice in the team. Because oh, Ron Heaven's a good time, Charlie. Take everybody to dinner, buy a drink, have right. a laugh. Doesn't matter what, right? Yeah. But I mean, still these way. guys, you couldn't get a laugh out of that team if you had, you know, freaking Steve Martin sitting there. Yeah, I know, for sure. Well, let's, we'll get to that. Um, actually, uh, we're, we're, all right. Well, hey, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up, Dave, um, right now because uh, yeah, we could go on and on about Bale, Stanton. I still want to get to you know Hannah Bailey O'Mara, Motocross of Nations. I mean, where do I where yeah. do I begin? Yeah, you know what? You, uh, we got we got to get back to this whole thing. I mean, in, in theory, there's a there's a not that I'm not that I'm a, a great storyteller. I'm sure you're gonna have to edit and clean this whole mess up. But nah. when you start talking about the the Americans and how poor their results were in the late 70s going to Europe and then in the early 80s where the AMA couldn't get a team to go and uh, Bell Ray and Roger and um, Dick Miller I think uh, right? Dick Miller Dick Miller is actually I think the guy that spearheaded it I mean they they put together an effort to and it was and it was basically an unknown team that won in Europe so starting to, starting from the 80s with Trophy in 81 and then Magoo winning four motos in 82 and right. and then Honda had a pretty good run all the way through McGrath and that was like a that was almost like a over a 10-year period. Well, it was yeah. more like a 13-year period after that. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about the Rabbi Fork. That fork yeah. that you had. On, uh, oh, yeah. Where do we Where do we start? Um, okay. Right. Let's uh, Let's uh, Let's do a part two um, as soon as we can. We'll be I'll be in touch here with you and uh, and yeah. Thank you for doing the uh, Trans World Motocross PTO Sports. It, it, it was fun for me and uh, thanks for calling, Steve. All right, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, talk to you. Bye. Great guy, great stories, and fantastic career. That was part one of the uh, 
podcast with Dave Arnold. And let's seamlessly move right into part two, where Dave gets more into detail about some of the great careers and machines that he's been around and he's affected. And uh, again, Dave's still at the races, so it's an interesting guy to, to talk to. Maybe we do a part three? Hmm, I don't know. But for now, here's part two. Thanks for listening to the 2008 Classics, everybody. Welcome to the BTOsports.com Transworld Motocross Podcast. I'm Steve Mathis, and this is part two of the Dave Arnold Podcast. Uh, if you haven't caught part, part one, go back in the archives and check it out. This is part two with a guy who, uh, a very interesting man who was a mechanic slash team manager uh, at Honda Factory and now uh, R&D. Dave, we're going to go part two. Uh, thank you for part one, by the way. I got some great responses from it. Uh, you're welcome, Steve. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I've had some people at work track me down and say it was. They had a lot of fun listening to it. Oh, cool. Hopefully, you didn't get any in trouble. I think there was some four-stroke talk yeah. and two-stroke talk. And <laughs> no, it's it's so far so good, but right, you right. never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we kind of left off last last uh, last time we did this with um, well, we you know basically you were moving into a a mechanic slash manager role at Honda in the early '80s. Um, I guess right off the bat. You worked for Roger uh, in the GPs, Roger DeCoster, before he became Yamaha team manager. Um, I wanted to ask you about that Ryby fork on that Honda. You know, that's a that's a real interesting photo. And talk about working on that thing. Um, you know, uh, there was a Honda formed HRC in 1980, mm-hmm. and the project leader's name was Mr. Miyakoshi, a real strong-willed, um, strong leader type of a character. And he wanted, you know, Honda wanted to develop hardware and win races. And, you know, I think they fell a little bit behind the ball um, in the second half of the 70s. And so they wanted, a, they wanted like a 10-year commitment to kind of turn that around and develop hardware and, and try, to, try to create some winning momentum. And so this Miyakoshi really wanted Roger to, you know, Roger still had a lot of good races in him, mm-hmm. but um, – he probably wasn't at that time still the dominant rider in Europe. I mean, he was getting a lot of competition toward the, and even Suzuki was still getting a lot of competition at the later part of the 70s mm-hmm. um, from Nikola, Yamaha, and some other riders. And so, um, but in any case, you know, Roger has always been, um, you know, he, I'm sure he's talked about this himself, but Roger's always been very involved with the motorcycle and the hardware and the testing and the development. And uh, maybe, I, I think Roger, not to speak on his behalf, but I think he um, had the feeling, you know, he was still struggling to try to find some kind of mechanical advantage and, and, and win Grand Prix. And, and he... Um, him and Ravi Valentino, he was a kind of an inventor, mm-hmm. creative technical guy from Italy, crazy Italian. And so they struck up a friendship, and Ravi had this rudimentary, um, I call it a four-bar link. I don't think it's actually a four-bar link, but it's a, it's a parallelogram of sorts, you know, front suspension. And um, Roger started testing with Ravi, I believe, in the... In the you know, in 79, early 79, I think he even ran it in a few Grand Prix. I don't think he ran it all season, but it was kind of a chromoly version of Revy's original design, and it still had um, two Olean shocks at the time, I believe, one on each side of, mm-hmm. of uh, this linkage fork. So 
in any case, when Miyakoshi and HRC struck up a deal with Roger to be racing Hondas in 1980, Roger was very interested to continue that development, and he got Miyakoshi and HRC to kind of buy into it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it was more of a relationship that they would in, they would continue the development and try to evolve it, and if ever turned into production feasibility, there's all the licensings in terms of that agreement. I don't I have any knowledge of it all. Right. But there's that that picture that you see is a is a test fork that we had um, during the 19 I'm going to say 82 season, and but there was many generations of that Reby fork where you know Honda made they tried to get the weight out of the fork, mm -hmm. and um, you know that was one of the disadvantages was he, probably the positives of that front end was the trajectory the wheelbase didn't it was kind of adjustable that it, it didn't always get shorter like a telescopic fork you could make the wheel um, the wheelbase not get as short under braking, not oh, okay. transfer as much weight under braking. Mm -hmm. um, you could control the amount of dive. And it also had, you know, the, the, the evolution of rear suspension with decarbon shocks and all the load and all the leverage for the long travel created in the rear mm -hmm. evolved, you know, the shocks to be quite a high level. So now you were sort of using that same level of rear suspension technology on the front. And it was from a damping and, and, and shock capability standpoint, that also was a big advantage for that system. Okay. Um, yeah. So it had it had there's there's pictures there was shocks on on one on the right one on the left and then the picture of the Honda the use I think you're talking about is they moved they made some little uh, rockers and they put the the shock up on the triple clamps behind the number plate and there's some also some generations of that same design that were they tried to take the whole shock off of the front fork and they had one in the backbone and they had another one in the down tube and just some <laughs> hydraulic hoses yeah and um uh, ultimately, what that led to was the development of the cartridge fork that Honda kind of capitalized on and started racing in the, in the early 80s. Right, right, right. Um, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought he raced. He did race GPs with it a little bit, right? I thought I saw a photo. He did. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure I saw him with it at Carlsbad yeah. on a Suzuki. Um, I know Donnie Hansen was kind of becoming our star guy in the 80s, and mm -hmm. that's kind of when we had that, that bike um, with that suspension on it, right. and I, he might have raced that bike, that that picture, the way you saw it, at like let's say an Anaheim Supercross or something like that. Right, right. We had we had also a rear suspension they call double pro link rear suspension, which is somewhat the same, but it's much more disguised. When you look at the bike, mm -hmm. um, you can't really tell that it's got two rockers and two sets of linkages. But they had a they had a rear suspension at the same time that Donnie raced halfway through the season. And independently of when he raced that front suspension. Oh, okay. Wow, cool. And then I guess the downsides would be that it was heavy and it had a lot of moving parts that could fail, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of turn here because at the same time they're developing this stuff. I mean, one, they're looking at the production feasibility. Uh, I believe it was heavy. I think also it had a, what they call a moment of inertia or kind of a weight feeling. Physically, it wasn't super heavy, but, mm -hmm. you know, a telescopic
telescopic fork is relatively in line between the stem and the front axle, where that thing had a lot of, uh, we could say, call it swing weight, right? Uh, you yeah, would yeah. feel the weight right. or that moment of inertia. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, okay, so you wrapped up Roger's career, and I believe you talked about how he would have won the last two GPs of his career if it hadn't been yeah. for a DNF. If, yeah, but... if, he, if he had a better mechanic. <laughs> but uh, well, but he did go out with a win. We were, yes. we were scheduled to go to, uh, I think it was Farley Castle in England. Was gonna, it was not a Grand Prix, but it was after the last race, and it was kind of an invitational race in, in, in England. And so he, he um, in Luxembourg, he ended up announcing his retirement and canceling that next race in England. And uh, it was a big deal. I mean, they had lots of enthusiasts for us, and it was the last race of the year. And I think we might have talked earlier that it was kind of a challenging situation. Not only did Roger, you know, he wanted to – finish the season on a win or maybe finish his career on a win, hopefully. But uh, at the same time, the championship was coming to head and it was a really close points race between Maller and Lackey. And Maller riding a Honda and Rogers, one of his key responsibilities was to ensure that Honda was going to win the championship or he was going to do the best he could to to help Andre with his chances of winning the championship. Um, And so it's kind of like he had the ride of his life that day. I mean, he was the fastest guy on the track, but he also kind of had to be aware not to get in the middle of whatever was going on with Andre and um, Mal Mal Urban Lackey. Oh, yeah, okay, all right. Um, And so so you wrap up that year, um, and then what do you you become manager after that? Yeah, um, almost directly after that. um, I don't know. We might have had like a month or some time off. I think Roger went vacationing in the south of France and... Um, I might have packed everything up and got it sent back to the States. But uh, okay. as we got back to the States, you know, I you know, I was kind of on a leave of absence from, you know, I'm an American guy and, and I right. work for American Honda, and, you know. So it was kind of a special arrangement that I was able to work directly for the factory or HRC directly while in Europe for this Grand Prix effort. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and and... You know, Gunnar Lindstrom was the race team manager for the second half or, or, or quite a few years in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, being in racing takes a toll on whoever's in charge or mechanics and riders. It's kind of hard to sustain that type of lifestyle for a long period of time. So I think Gunnar was making plans to maybe not travel, talking to people about maybe not traveling as much. So mm-hmm. they kind of shoehorned him into. I forget his role. I think it might have been power equipment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, something. <laughs> they, something, something, you know, instead of racing. And then when I came off the roll, I was, you know, I mean, it was kind of a shock for me because I remember the top two guys at the time, it was Mr. Picasso and Mr. Shimizu, and he's like, okay, you're the manager and we got to win, and, you know, we're going to ramp this thing up, and <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah. you know, HRC and all the support, and immediately they said, um, you got to go out and get top guys. Well, Honda, you know, it's great that Roger was there, and it's great that I had a new job. But, you know, it really, Honda didn't have all the momentum in the States. You know, mm-hmm. at that time, Suzuki had Barnett, and Hannah had, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. Yamaha had Bob Hannah and Johnson and Glover. And, right. I mean, you know, um, I think Suzuki also had Ken Howerton. I mean, there was quite a few players, but they weren't in Honda. Yeah. And we were starting from ground zero, really. I mean, the U.S., the Honda team at the time was, was pretty weak. Um, not to offend anybody that was on the team at that time. But, yeah. As an overall effort, right, and no. so we had a lot of work to to do, 
So you went and really you you written, you you kind of subscribed to just let's find some kids, huh? Let's find some young. It started. Yeah. It started out. They really wanted to hire Barnett. I think that they Gunnar had talked with Ken Howerton the year before, but mm-hmm. you know he had he had signed a multi-year deal again with um, Suzuki, and so they were trying to get Barnett, which is kind of I won't say it's unethical, but there was kind of a a handshake gentleman agreement that nobody would hire each other's number one riders, but. You know, Honda was starting this big effort, and Barnett was available, and he was coming off of, I think, winning the championship in 79. I think Hannah had gotten hurt, and I think Barnett, Barney was in full floater. The works bikes as if yeah. they were working really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, we talked to him. We, you know, we, we had this big effort. Japan was involved. They were going to give better support. And we, you know, it all looked good, and, yep. and Barnett was happy to – we kind of had a handshake verbal agreement, or what do they call that? Uh, letter you know, of intent or something? Yeah, we, we yeah. kind of have a letter of intent. And, and Suzuki got nervous and called them back in there. And Tosh, the manager at the time, gave him a whole bunch of money and mm-hmm. and, and locked them up and foiled, foiled our plans. And that was my, one of my first responsibilities given as a team manager. And I had quite a few people mad at me for botching the deal yeah, or you, for you, it not playing out. And you failed. <laughs> yeah, once again. Uh, yeah, well, Barnett signed. I did one of these with Barnett. He said it was a three-year million-dollar deal, which yeah. – that was huge back then. Yeah, it was you big. Know? It was very, very big then. And, uh, you know, not to get into who was making what, but nobody was making that. I mean, yeah. the Honda guys, you know, we didn't, you know, there was Marty that was the top guy in the early 70s. I mean, he was, I, I, even, I, don't, I, was, I was a mechanic, so I'm not really even privy to it, but they didn't yeah. make lots of money. I mean, he made good money, and mm-hmm. his family helped him invest wisely. But, and then, but I think when the Omaha guys started to beat, on the guys, and maybe even Suzuki to some degree, you know, I think Yamaha started paying their guys pretty good because Yamaha and Honda have always had a lot of friction or competitiveness or, you know, yeah, they, 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 you know, they both, they both. I don't know. It's I, maybe they're number one and number two well, uh, on a, different years, but they, they both wanted to stick it to each other. As a, as a former factory Yamaha mechanic for four years with McCarty yeah. and Oliver there, yeah. I can tell you there is a bit of a rivalry for no, sure. No, there's no, there's yeah. deep blood. I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's deep, um, there's deep, there's deep rooted with the Japanese, and it trickles into McCarty and his job and all the mechanics. It's, uh, it's, um, it, it was corporate war. It was always, it was really corporate war. I mean, they weren't doing this recreationally. I mean, it was yeah. it was not just for grins. It was they really wanted results. I mean, if they were going to work with you and help develop hardware and answer the phone when you were calling, that was all good. But they wanted something for it, and they made it clear. Yeah. And I'm sure it was like that at Yamaha. I mean, they, they everybody really wanted to make their mark at that point in time. Yeah, right. So after not hiring Barnett, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, Japan, the, the, you know, Miyakoshi, this new effort. You know, they were they were kind of frustrated. They wanted to hit the ground running. So, mm-hmm. so you know, we did the best we could. But you know, we I think we had. Um, um, I remember. I remember the thing on Donnie Hansen. I mean, Johnny O'Mara was riding for Mugen at the time, which was Honda's son Hirotoshi. Right. So that was essentially somewhat of a shoe-in deal to that he graduated to the works effort. And he had won the GP anyway, so it was like... A, and he yeah. won the GP, so it was kind of all in line, you know, and, you know, he was kind of in the fold or under the umbrella or in the family, however you want to... And uh, so I remember coming off the road, 
well, it wasn't even off the road. When when the 500 Grand Prix in 1980 came to the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, my brother and I, he was we all rode in the hills, and he was a dirt bike guy, and he followed us for it. And he'd gone, you know, local racing at Indian Dunes, and he goes, man, there's this Donnie Hansen riding for Colby on a Can-Am, and the guy, he's the top local guy. Cause, right. And, uh, you know, I had this new responsibility, and, and I think I mentioned to Gunnar, I said, I said, my brother says Donnie Hansen looks good, and it, I think the very next L.A. Coliseum, Donnie Hansen had the ride of his life. I oh, mean, yeah. on a can he was, <laughs> I, I don't know if you, you remember that race? No, no, not, not, I remember Coliseum, a bunch of them, but not Hansen on a Can-Am. And Hansen was on, on a, and even Weiner, I think, was for a short period of time, but there was a local dealer in the Reseda, Los Angeles area mm-hmm. named Andy Colby, actually, ironically, who I used to work for as just a, a street bike shop mechanic. But, um... You know, he was he had a racing background with some of the early guys, the Bud Eakins and Dave Eakins and mm-hmm. and guys like that, you know, Steve McQueen, he kinda hung around that group and but in any case he you know, he had some local guys on Can Ams and was trying to ramp up the Can Am distributorship and in any case Gunner went you know, everybody in the world from Honda was kinda looking at Donnie because we had mentioned him and then he had a good ride and I think they locked right. him up right after that. So we were kinda scrapping for whoever we could get, but we didn't have any stars going into that 81 season I think um I think Roger had a pretty good relationship with Danny Laporte. Mm-hmm. I think he brought him in because, you know, Laporte's always someone that was kind of under the Roger umbrella mm-hmm. when they were on Suzuki's through the 80s. Right. Um, so we brought him in kind of last minute, and Chuck Sun, who had won the 500cc national champion, who was on the team. Yep. I think along with his brother Ron Son, actually in 1980. They had both the Rising but, Sons. <laughs> yeah, and and so Chuck had won. Those are really good bikes in 1980. I think it was a a 450 starting the season off turned into a 476. Uh-huh. But in any case, um, you know, and then so Chuck was the reigning 500 CC national champion going into '81. So it was essentially those four guys: O'Mara, Hanson, Son, Laporte. Yeah. And uh, and so then, uh, you know, decent season by everybody. They're kind of growing into it. And then the Motocross the Nations comes up. And America yeah. America hadn't had a team for, I don't know, two or three years just because uh, finances and getting beat or I don't really know. Talk, yeah. about, talk about how that came together and all, everybody that, went the, together. You know, so the team, you know, we, Japan's barely answering the phone. We're, you know, we're playing <laughs> second fiddle all right. year long. I mean, but one thing we're doing is we're t- and we hired a trainer to help these guys. We were really trying to make them A-level. We were, it was an A-level effort, and we were trying to get these guys the best support we could, develop the hardware, pro-link, linkage suspension was new. I think we had uh, options of air cooling and water cooling on some of the bikes. So, uh, again, Japan didn't send us first-string equipment just because we didn't have any star guys, and they weren't going to work that hard unless, you know, there was guys that could back it up. So... You know, Donnie, Donnie, Johnny was riding good. I think Chuck got beat in the 500 Nationals. We didn't really win any championships in the States. Um, but, you know, O'Mara was doing pretty good in the 125 Nationals, and Hansen was starting to race and now compete with Hannah. Hannah's kind of coming off an injury, um, that leg injury that I'm sure everybody knows about. Right. So, I mean, we were kind of – and but it was uh, it was the big break when – I can I can remember it clearly. I mean, Dick 
the U.S. had a really hard time getting all these guys. There was real, real strong personalities, and mm -hmm. there was the Bob Hanna hating the Howerton, hating the Weiner. You know, everybody, Barnett, Barnett, they weren't all yeah. warm and fuzzy. Everybody was kind of into it for themselves and their factory effort. And yeah. yeah, it was a lot of, you know, the Europeans were fast, right? They had all the world champions. It wasn't fun. And, yeah. and typically when the Americans went over in the late 70s, it was Hanna wanted to show he was the top. Uh, Yamaha guy, you know, over at uh, Heike Mickle. It was something like that, yeah. right? You know, it was a world stage, and I'm not saying they didn't want to do good, but the Americans didn't have a history of doing well at, at that type of an event. Right, right. So, therefore, I think the AMA couldn't get anybody interested to go in 81, and it was Miller that said, he got real frustrated with the whole situation. And... Um, it was, I think, him talking to Roger and him talking to Martin and I think Arthur Cohen from Bell Ray in Europe got involved. And yeah. and uh, I remember Roger asking me, what do you think? And, of course, you know, I just come from Europe being his mechanic in 1980, and I thought, well, it, it would be a great idea. We don't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning. You know, <laughs> Andre Romans and all these yeah. guys. I mean, Malaire, you know. Yeah. Huh? Carliquist, Malaire, I mean... Oh, yeah. my gosh, you know, I mean, the, the the guys in Europe, I mean, you had, you know, you had Harry, Stephen's dad was yeah. still riding, I think Harry was still riding, and, man, you had some good guys, you know. Yeah. And uh, especially, I think one of those races was, was in Lomo, and, right. you know, we didn't ride, man, I didn't think, you know, especially guys from Southern California, except for Laporte, like we had, I didn't view us as a very strong You're a good Grand Prix-level, sand, rough sand track type of a team, right? Yeah, and that's a good point, because let's face it, none of the guys on your Honda team were the best American riders yet, and, no. and you were going to a no. deep, deep sand track. I've been to Lomo, so I can, yeah. you know, it's nothing like Southwick or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, even when, you know, I got to experience, oh, it was great, uh, in, in 1980, being Rogers mechanic, and, you know, I go to Lomo, we do set up the bike, and Olean's, and Kayaba, and Joe, and, you know, testing everything, and there was guys out there like, um, you know, Carpenter, right? Yeah, yeah. His, his brother, tune, you know, with not even a factory effort, the shirt tail's hanging out, and he's got like a chrome helmet, and they haul I mean, oh, that's so you were just, I was in awe of these guys I'd never even heard of and how, you know, the level was pretty high. That's pretty funny, Dave, because when we, we went to Lomo to test before the motocross the nations in 03, and yeah. I showed up with Tim Ferry, who's from Florida and, and can ride the sand, and there was some dude with no numbers on an all-black metal militia bike that blew by him on a straightaway. It, it, that's exactly <laughs> right. And so, therefore, you know, and then, you know, on, on, a, on a world, I mean, Andre, there was just... Mm -hmm. There was two or three Belgians that were the level of Andre Romans, and the right. same for the Germans, and the same for you know the right. the English and the Italians. Everybody had you know two or three real strong guys. Maybe it was hard to get four guys every time from every country, but I mean yeah. certainly we weren't that, you know. And uh, and, and then these guys weren't even the no-name guys. And then I'm sure you've heard the stories how. You know, typically, I don't know if it's, I don't know what type of consideration we're talking about, but it was acknowledgement that we were even a force or should even be there. You know, it's almost like, you know, how, how bicycle teams get, um, they, they have to be selected or they have to be qualified for the Tour de France, right? I didn't know but that. But a little, yeah, bit, a little yeah. bit like that, you know, you had to actually officially be, you know, right. a, a, a that level to race an event like this. 
And, you know, the think we were kind of snubbed. Roger goes over there, and of course, Roger's Roger, and now he's in an advisory role or kind of coordinate and help me manage things. And I think he was pretty frustrated that, that you know, we, we were um, mm -hmm. laughed off or whatever. It was kind of, it was kind of a joke. In, in, I think in the um, eyes of the Europeans. And let's not forget, people who don't who are listening to this that don't realize, it was one week was all 250s, and then the next yeah. week was all 500s. It wasn't yes, like that's it exactly, was now. That's exactly. Oh yeah. my gosh, the yeah. equipment! I mean, <laughs> the containers we had, the the equipment we had to prep yeah. and load, and spare wheels. You know, of course, the different width, the different tires, the yeah. different gearings, spare engines. <laughs> I mean, my gosh, it was our entire race shop went into some 747 containers. <laughs> So you uh, so you ended up you go there and and like you said was it a lack of respect from the beginning once you're there? Is it just you're, yeah? I, you're... I think I think um, I mean you know me I, I I I think Roger and Arthur Cohen and and those guys were of course of course those guys are much more engaged with the FIM and mm -hmm. the press and all that right I mean I'm just a worker blue collar I got to make sure everything works and everything's on first and right. you know I'm not I don't I don't speak five or six languages like Roger and Arthur so you know me uh, you know I heard them make comments that Roger was all wound up that they weren't giving him enough love mm -hmm. but uh uh, you know, for me, um, you know, I was just, I was still focused to try to do the best we could. I think right. everybody was. Um, let me ask you this, because I don't really remember the results, uh, but were you fast in practice, like right from the start? Was it like, hey, you know, we can you, actually you, win? you know what? There was, of course, Romans, I mean, they were, they were fast in qualifying, and I remember, I, I remember being kind of nervous. I mean, the whole time, I didn't think we were going to win. <laughs> I, I, I went in it, I hoping to have a, a respectable result, you know, and quite frankly, you know, the, the nice hotel that Delray put up and all, all the support that Dick Miller and the magazine um, drummed up, I mean, I was trying to just do that that whole effort good, you know, but um, I didn't honestly think we were going to win. I think Roger had a better feel for, you know, maybe the, the team's capability, even though we had, they weren't the level of guys from the States. I mean, maybe he had a little bit more, well, for sure he had a little bit more confidence than I did. I was like, you know, I, I still, I had a lot of respect and knew how much talent there was over there. And, yeah, yeah. But to answer your question, our guys were fast and qualifying on Saturday. I think that was somewhat, yeah, you're lucky. I think it was a little bit laughed off. And um, I, we all, I was more focused on problems. We, we were running um, air-cooled bikes still at that time. Mm -hmm. It was still thought that water cooling was too dangerous for Supercross and <laughs> too heavy and that hoses were going to break and people were going to get sprayed and burned and outlawed. And, you know, there was all this stuff. So, was there, uh, you was know, there really? We I were, didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had the option of going from air-cooled to water-cooled. And, of course, the water-cooled bikes made more power, but ergonomically the tanks weren't quite right. as narrow, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But then there was still a controversy with the AMA and some of the regulations about, and even internally at Honda, whether or not we should truly commit to going that route or not. For, for professional racing, which right. ironically all the production bikes had all, were going that way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but in any case, we had a problem in practice at Lomo. That's deep sand, and I remember it being damp sand, and, you know, damp, and that just sucks power. And they were air-cooled engines, and they had a, we had a bit of detonation. Yep. Trying to, trying to jet the bikes, and uh, I think we even had all the bikes apart Saturday afternoon after practice, and we ran over to a shop, um, 
Chilkin. You remember the guy that invented the, the monoshock? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we, it was one of us, Roger, we ran over to this guy's shop and honed all the cylinders, and we had a real trash going just to keep things alive. Yeah, yeah, wow. wow. Got, got back late at night, put everything back together early Sunday morning. I mean, it was it was a big trash. Right, right. And and the, uh, uh, so on Sunday comes and you guys win the 250, motor, the trophy donations is what it was called. Yeah, and, and, and again, um, you know, it wasn't, it was one of these things where it was, you know, one or two of the guys did really good, you know, but it wasn't a slam dunk because it stayed until the very end of the last moto. It was it was still up in the air between, I believe it was England, Belgium, and the United States. Okay. And, all right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm telling you, Roger was running around and trying to calculate the points, and I think he had somebody somebody helping him do that. But, uh, yeah. you know, I was trying to, uh, you know, I wasn't doing the math, right? I was just right. kind of following orders at that point in the game. But, oh, man, it was, we were, you've never seen, we were on cloud nine. People were excited. We were yeah. wound up. It was wow. it was too good to be true. And it was totally unexpected. It wasn't, uh, I think, on all fronts, especially mine. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, it was a diamond in the rough kind of a deal. You know, you know, Dave, uh, from history now, it would be much cooler if you were like, I knew we were going to win. I knew we Yeah, you know, I wish I never I I mean even when we 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 got a we got a pretty good um, record going and a lot of momentum in the 80s, but I really never tried to be that. I mean, I, yeah. I really tried to stay humble as my, and keep your finger on who was hungry and who wasn't. And, right. you know, it's Roger and I talked quite a bit. I think it's he's like that by nature as well. I mean, um, I don't take anything for granted, even, even when things look good and, and, in fact, are playing out pretty well. Um, you know, a, a, anything can turn around and turn bad at a moment's notice. Right, right, right. You know, I, I, I don't know. At that point in time, I was, oh, man, it was exciting. Everybody involved, I mean, the first year, the Americans, and then the Americans beating the Europeans. and Yeah. And, and, and also within Honda, when we came back, you know, man, it took a while even to settle in, you know. Yeah, we won this big race, but I remember... And the next big race was at Unadilla, and I remember Ward Robinson said, okay, and we had all these wreaths and trophies and all this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just happened to be in some of the containers that were shipped back to New York, and we had we were in the box van, and they had a pickup truck drive everybody around and wave to the crowd, and they had all the trophies, and they, had all, they made this big hoopla, right? And right. people were freaking out over the whole deal. <laughs> so, well, and, and then also within Honda, all of a sudden, you know, yes, we didn't have... You know, we hadn't won championships, but now we have that, right? I mean, it's almost like we earn respect. I mean, America won respect. The, the Honda team won respect. Yeah. We got, we got, you know, a day late and dollar short. Even some respect from Japan. Okay, well, then you deserve. We'll give you bikes next year again. Okay. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. where was the next week, the 500 race at? Yeah, um, I'm gonna say Gaeldorf. Oh, okay, Germany. Yep. I think I was in Germany. I'm okay. pretty sure it was the track of Gaeldorf. And, uh, Did that go easier? And, yeah, it was crazy because, you know, what's crazy about that is, I mean, uh, none of these guys, or let's say, I won't say none of these guys, but Johnny, I don't know that Johnny had ever ridden a 500 before that event. And he was <laughs> he was right in the middle of it. He was a star guy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But Johnny was a 125 fan in the clutch, you right. know, high RPM, uh, you know, yeah. 
and, and and here he was on a 500, and he had a respectable ride. I can't. I think they had. Um, I think the 500 win went even a little bit. E- easier or it it fell into place or they had more of a margin than even the 250. The 250 was probably more of a crapshoot. The 500, maybe it was their confidence level. I'm not sure what, but it was a a little bit more of a solid performance even. uh, And the Euro guys after the 250 were like, ah, that's okay. We are 500 specialists. We'll show them. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. And the Americans went on the 500. I mean, I don't think, and they weren't even the guys, right? And uh, it, um, it was a big deal and I even take I even think it took a long time of course the impact at that time was big but I think it even um, maybe in hindsight or maybe even as weeks and months played out it turned into a bigger deal as mm-hmm. you know the press started to reflect on wow they beat our world champions you know they right. beat our 500 the 500 Grand Prix was the premier um, series in the world, right? It wasn't 250 Supercross United States. Yep. You know, it was 500 Grand Prix, and all of a sudden you got some 125 punk kid out of, you know, Van Nuys, California, and, yeah. you know. Probably can't even kick over a 480. Exactly. So, um, and so the so okay, you win in '81, and uh, Dave Arnold proves that uh, he's the greatest manager ever. And uh, <laughs> and you go '82, you '82, uh, the team Hansen captures the Supercross and Outdoor title in pretty unexpected form, right? I mean, he was yes. on it that that, that year. Uh, Donnie Hansen was on. It was also you signed um, a very closely contested series. Yeah. Um, uh, there, I, I think we had hired a, we had another, we had a support guy that did really well that year too. I'm almost sure that was 82, but we had Kenny Keelan out of Florida. I think oh, Schultz yeah. got hurt at the last minute mm-hmm. and we put Kenny Keelan, a support guy, and he led the national series. He won the first race in Gainesville right. and that was either 82 or 83, but I mean, he led for almost half the series. And then when it got to the West coast and hard pack, then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, he wasn't as strong on the clay tracks, but it ended up at the end of the series it was uh ricky johnson and barnett i think was sort of in it but barnett was having some physical problems i believe with his knee hannah was i believe injured off and on yeah and uh it ended up ricky johnson was kind of the yamaha support guy you know and bob and glover and these other guys were more of the works riders and there was anyway it came down to i think at castle rock colorado and ricky kind of had a points advantage but he but he overjumped a jump and broke his wheel, and that that uh, yeah. that ensured Donnie the title. And Johnny went Donnie went on and won both titles that year, Supercross and National. And then we go into Trophy to Nations, and uh, it's a completely new team. Unfortunately, Hanson gets injured in right. practice before that event. And then the lineup changes. I think Bailey was flown over the last minute. Yeah. Uh, what was uh... – well, Hanson would never race again, really. Uh, career-ending crash. What did he do? Were you there? What What happened? I, I was there. Essentially, I was there. I, I you know, we, we, it was a practice track, and I, you know, you sent over all the equipment. Everybody gets the truck and the gas and the oil, and you know, everybody. So let's say it's like a Thursday before yeah. the event on Saturday, and we went to a local practice track in kind of somewhat south of Germany. Yeah. I think down towards Stuttgart, but it wasn't that far. And uh, it was a small town, and these guys were – and I remember, um, of course, Magoo, Gibson, uh, Donnie Hansen, and Johnny. And um, 
I remember those guys just going out on the track, and then I ran into town to get, nobody had lunch, and I went in to get right. some bread rolls and some drinks and some ham and cheese or I don't know what. And I came back, and um, Donnie had, had crashed in the whoops. I don't even think they were really warmed up. I think everybody was just kind of getting going. and. Yep. And I think I was in town, and somebody came and told me that there was, they called an ambulance and that, that Donnie had crashed really bad. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Maybe. And it wasn't, I don't think it was, you know, almost like the Bailey thing. They weren't real big, giant X game, you know, yeah. type of uh, big crashes, you know. they. I think Donnie just, you know, there was, a, there was a whoop section kind of in front of where we parked the truck, and I think he mistimed it, and he just, when he, when he fell off the bike, he just happened to land on his tailbone incorrectly, and yeah. that's what did it you know yeah wow um shocker for sure that that coming weekend magoo sweeps all four motos two weeks in a row in probably yeah. what has to be one of the greatest rides of all time right it, it, it was it was crazy because um the whole magoo thing i mean there was a lot of the industry, uh, other riders, even people within our team. It's like nobody really knew what to make of Magoo. I mean, we had snatched them, kind of put them under our wing. I mean, we, we, we worked with Lorenz Offner, the LP manager, which was kind of a Honda support effort at the time. And um, Magoo was doing unbelievable on a production. I think it was 480 in the first half of the year. Then we got them, made a deal with Lorenz to give them some different support or some different riders or something like that. Made some arrangement. And then we, we put him on the works effort and uh, oh gosh, man, the guy was, was unbelievably fast, but, but um, people were scared of him, you know? I mean, it, they didn't know what to make him. They didn't know if he was crazy or talented, and that's the, that's the honest truth, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they even the people... If you if you were a spectator, it had to have been the best thing ever to watch because never has anybody just run on that ragged edge yeah. the entire time. The entire time. Crazy that he just goes out. I mean, I mean he was fast in America, but he hadn't well, necessarily established it, it, himself. And then he just goes out and beats the world's best badly. And and again, you know, the the U.S. and Honda they bring this team that wasn't even star guys in '81. Right. And then in '82, it's it's also except for Donnie Hansen, who just got okay. Now now the guy that did win national level championships got injured. So yeah. and who is Magoo, right? Right. That doesn't even that, the only Magoo they know is the cartoon character. <laughs> and and uh, Magoo was unbelievably fast. Well, yeah, I I would love to see video from that event. I saw there's a photo of MXA. <laughs> Just a classic photo of the start, and he has to be 20 bike lengths ahead of everybody. <laughs> Magoo, Magoo, I remember he lined up for those races without a chest protector. Roger's like, you know, running through the pits. Danny, you know, Danny, you forgot your chest protector, and he's like, I'm not going to need it, you know. Really? And huh? uh, um, nobody did, was, you know, that, that, that track, it was, it's a pea gravel track. No, you don't do that, right? right I mean, right, it's like. Right. It's like running around behind a shotgun when, when you know, yeah. the 500cc works two-stroke. I'm not going to need it. That's awesome. Um, I'm not going to need it. And, and, I mean, I remember I remember Magoo being so on that he would say, and he has so much just focused, just focused energy. And, mm -hmm. and he's like, don't let those other guys hold me up. And that's not to be disrespectful, but, you know, I, I want to get out front. I, I, you know, he 
he wanted to do some damage. You and, guys uh, are like, what are you talking uh, about? I remember the 250 race, you know, and we said, okay, okay, you know, we'll tell the other guys where your position is. And, you know, all you guys, Danny's got really good lap times in practice. So if he yeah. comes up, you know, not just Danny, like any team member, yeah. like he would for a race like that. Of course, you're, you're looking at the overall effort. Right. And the overall goal, and it's not totally to the individual. You kind of, if somebody else was coming through, we'll give you a sign and cut each other some slack. And then it's, you know, we're more focused on beating Belgium and Germany and yeah. England and all these Holland and all these other guys, right? Yeah. And uh, oh man, it wasn't the second lap. Maybe it was the first lap. Danny's going through the mechanic area, one hand on the handlebar, pointing at Johnny or David, and frantically like, get him out! You know, I, yeah. I gotta go, right? I mean, he was just crazed. <laughs> and wow. man, he was fast and. I'm, and I don't want to, you know, this story doesn't really get better over time because, you know, now, now you, you, the other writers were, had never seen that type of riding style. They'd never seen anybody go that far off of jumps. They'd never seen anybody in their eyes ride that unsafe or crazy. I mean, those guys were, they, they, they were, there was, um, there was somewhat of a, con well, more than a concern. There was kind of a protest from a lot of the Europeans, like, this guy's crazy and someone's going to get hurt, right? It was, well, that's what I was going to ask you, yeah. yeah. So that, and I remember a um, there's a picture, I believe it is Andre Vromans again, and um, there was a big uphill, and then they, they rounded the top of the hill, but they get a lot of air, and there was a tree on the backside. And I remember in practice, David and Johnny, you know, they were saying, you cannot believe what Magoo's doing, how much air he's getting off this thing. And so <laughs> Dooney, uh, Magoo asked Roger to have the FIM trim the tree, and so they trimmed the tree. And I never went back there and looked at it, but the other riders are like, you, you can't. There was a picture of Magoo, even after the tree got trimmed, and he was like a... Yeah, so far up in the air over Vromans, and Vromans was on the ground looking over his shoulder in, in, in sheer. <laughs> um, I mean, the guy just didn't want to get hurt. Forget about winning the race, right, you know. Right. Yeah. And, and and Magoo was all, you know, how he did the big pancake thing, right, and right. and he's got the thing. He's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't have been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't have been there. Just incredible ride, no doubt about it. It was it was unbelievable, and. That really sealed the deal. I mean, again, who is Magoo? We don't even know. It was, they, they were flabbergasted. That it, it just seemed like it was the one-two punch, the Americans coming and yeah. not their top guys, and they did it again, and who are these guys? And that, that the second year, and it was four motos, and it wasn't who what, who was this guy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was that sealed the deal. Uh, that, that really put the American, I think, established their position and, and their level worldwide against something that had been traditionally, uh, you know, the, the European Grand Prix uh, effort. And then he gets stung by a bee, I guess, and it has to get... Oh, yeah. So so I come back in, and I think it was after the second moto, and, uh, and there was a uh, FIM official, and there was a nurse dressed in the white. I mean, she was out of the ambulance, and right. she's holding a syringe. And there's an FIM official holding her arm so that she can't give this. Yeah. Obviously, it was a uh, it was an antidote for the for the bee sting, right? Right. right. And uh, so, but he thought that he thought Magoo was on drugs, and this was some kind of an <laughs> antidote. And you know, he didn't buy the whole bee sting. I mean, Danny. 
was scratching. He was down to his underwear, and he grabbed. I remember he was just going crazy because, you know, whatever the reaction is, yeah. after you, if you're allergic and you get stung, and he grabbed a, out of Cliff or Crippa their, uh, a wire brush, and he was itching his skin. I mean, oh. also like a madman, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was just shredding his skin because <laughs> it had this breakout or this hive or this, you know, rash. And uh, I was like, I, I was starting to believe the, the FIM or the Europeans at that point in time. I was like, oh, my God, what have I got myself into here, you know? So, Funny. But, uh, you know, I think Roger explained the situation, and yeah. finally, finally, you know, and, it, you know, wow. it truly wasn't, it truly, it, it wasn't meth right. or heroin or, you know, it was truly some kind of a... A yeah. beasting, and you know, he got the whole thing straightened out. Funny, funny. So you go, uh, you, you, in 82, you sign Bailey, you got O'Mara, now 83 comes around, and you sign one of the, the winningest riders of all time, Hannah, uh, who was, at that point, uh, throwing his Yamahas down, talking crap about Yamahas in all the magazines. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. you know, he was fed up over there. How did that come about, signing Bob Hannah? Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, and I'm not trying to say that um but, um, uh, and, and I want to say this because, you know, O'Mara was a super talented writer, and, and Bailey was a super talented writer. And, and, uh, and even Jeff Ward, I, I think Roger and I sense there was a trend of like a really, um, high skill level rider between like a Ward, O'Mara, and a Bailey, and, and I can't remember one or two other guys, but, but I mean, those guys, you know, they started to feel like they could win championships if they would just be consistent and finish top five. And we, we, you know, um, we were getting a lot of pressure from Japan to dominate. I mean, that that was the Japanese. That was their character. I mean, it was it was, uh, you know, it, it, they 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 didn't understand getting second and third, right? And the riders, they, you know, they wanted to win championships. They really felt like being consistent and and, and not getting injured for the entire season, you know. And, and there was a lot of validity to that, right? Right. And I. I I think that, on the other hand, we were afraid if there was another guy coming into the sport in their prime like a Hannah or I think at the time it was like a Ricky Johnson that that, you know, I think we believe that attitude in the end truly prevails over talent, right? Right. Um, no, I don't know. It was just like a general belief that, uh, and that was the appeal for Hannah. You know, yes, he was over the hill. We knew he had some races in him, but it was we just wanted to get some of that attitude in our team, you know, and have it rub off on O'Mara and have it rub off on Bailey. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to slam O'Mara and Bailey. I mean, we were we were trying to do it to capitalize on their strengths and hopefully supplement their strength and create an overall. Um, uh, you know, I, mean, I remember the I remember the first contract negotiations with Bob, and I think we were paying bonuses for let's say three positions and sometimes five positions, and mm -hmm. I don't know because we weren't used to winning. You know, we we pay just to get right. just to be up in the running, just to be on the podium. We'd, yeah. we'd almost pay money, right? Yeah. And Bob was like, uh, you know, he ought to be the, he should have been the team manager. He goes, I I think you guys are crazy. You're crazy for paying people to get beat. He goes, take all that money and put it on first. I mean, Bob would not allow his contract to be written to where he was rewarded for anything but first. Wow. But, but he wanted all the eggs in that basket, right? Yeah. And that's just an example of how it was the entire season. I mean, Bob Bob was cocky like Bob's never been in Olympian. You know, I remember um, a press conference down in Florida that uh, – 
that we did, and Bob was going on about how nobody had a chance, and you'd have to let all the air out of everybody's tires for it to be close, and, you know, <laughs> the only guys he was going to be racing with was Amaran and Bailey, and they were going to be racing for second. They weren't, you know, yeah. but it was, you know, you still had... Uh, I guess I get back to that. I, you know, I, I'm by character a little bit more humble, right? I I, mm-hmm. I still respected our competitors and the other factories, and and I knew their true capability, right? I mean, we didn't have, you know what I mean? You're never that dominant, we, and we weren't that dominant. But Bob, you know, and I remember asking him, I said, man, you know, I, I mean, there's other guys that can win this race. It was before the Daytona Supercross. Yeah. And I said, you know, if we don't back up, or let's say you don't back up, I mean, when you come off with being this cocky or confident and you really have a bad day, I mean, doesn't that make you look bad or us look bad? Like, like, right. and, uh, and Bob goes, that's exactly why I do it. And this was in confidence. Right. We were driving in a rental car back to the hotel after this press conference, and yeah. that told me a lot about Bob. He, he, he said, uh, you know, and Bob didn't want to look like a fool, but look how many fans – I always tried to study. I go, why is the guy so popular? And Bob had a huge fan base. And I think that's exactly the reason that even if Bob was back in 12th or 10th or 8th, everybody was looking at him, right? right. Everybody, you know, he'd be flipping somebody off or doing – I mean, he'd be coming through the pack, and he'd be giving you 120%. And yeah. and, and Hannah was very instrumental in – not only winning a handful of races, unfortunately getting some injuries along the way, but but I think helping Bailey and Amara win championships. Yeah, we well we touched on this last show, and uh, you know Bob Oliver told me that Hannah was the fastest guy in '83. Uh, he just got hurt. You know he would have won yeah. both titles. Was flying yeah. wherever he raced, he was winning. Yeah, you know? but. Uh, yeah. Just injuries, but yeah, uh, Bailey's written about it a few times. How he looked at Hannah and was like, "Wow, that guy, he works hard," you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, Bob works hard, and Bob doesn't make excuses, and that's exactly what we wanted in the team. We didn't want this picnic, you know. We weren't on a picnic, you know. It was uh, it was war, and we needed somebody that had that killer instinct. And even if he wasn't the guy that was going to stay healthy all year, I mean, yeah. to me, Bob was worth his weight in gold. And you know. And. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't feel that way when I worked for Marty Smith and we were racing against him in the '70s. But I, I did in the early '80s when uh, yeah, funny. when he was on our side helping those guys. Funny how that works. And then also too, can you imagine for Hannah? Uh, getting off a, a works Yamaha with the radiator on the handlebars um, versus a factory Honda low boy tank, uh, just the latest, greatest thing. I mean, he must have just been in heaven, too. That bike was – your bikes are starting to come a long way right around now. You know, um, Japan was – I mean, it was – it was truly things were coming together. Um, anybody that comes out of the era, you know, a lot of people have a tendency. And, and, and um, you know, every team's hard to maintain that level of commitment, that level of uh, momentum, because a lot of people start looking at, well, I'm the ingredient. I'm, I mean, there was a lot of elements. I mean, Roger was a big asset, and I, I think uh, him and I worked really good together for, you know, the coordination, the focus, the testing, the writers. I mean, um, a lot of the development was done on our side. I think that um, we had a very good relationship with Japan. I mean, Japan with their commitment toward works racing. I mean, with HRC, they had engineers that were you know, doing engine development for all three classes and, and willing to work with us. I think they used us quite a bit for some of the dynamic stuff that wasn't such a pure science. Chassis balance, suspension, link ratios, all that stuff. I mean, you know, the, 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 the level of racing obviously was higher in the U.S., 
than it was domestically for those guys. So I think we had a lot of influence on the development of suspension systems and, and chassis. Right, right. And, but, uh, but, I mean, and, and I remember the first time that 82 Pike showed up with that low boy tank. I'm like, I don't know about all this, right? I mean, I'm probably a little bit of a traditionalist, you know, yeah. and I mean, I like to – but uh, – I'm telling you, man, that that bike was a good bike. That was the best works bike advantage, I believe, we ever had. In 82, um, yeah. In 1982, those bikes were unbelievable. Well, Lachine says his 85-125 was on another level, too. <laughs> that, that's that, you know they're, they're, okay it's that's probably a fair statement i think anything prior to 86 yeah um uh, although i got another story about 85 bike and lachine but i'll tell you later yeah well i want to touch on lachine yeah you, you, you had him you ha- hired him for 84 he lost a bitter war with johnson who was riding a production yamaha at the time um and then in 85 he put him on 125 and he just kills everybody and then of course we know what happened after the season in 85 yeah, I mean, you know, again, um, you know, uh, it, it reminds me of a lot of these all-star teams that they put together for basketball or baseball right. or some of the other sports. And you got all these star guys that maybe they know each other. Obviously, they've competed against each other. But um, that's kind of what our 85 team was. I mean, we really didn't have room for another guy. And putting Lachine in there was a last-minute deal. We, mm-hmm. we actually – had talked to Brian Myerskoff about being on the team, and I gotta say, I had more than a commitment, verbal commitment, with him for mm-hmm. that to to play out. But um, other other factors, you know, I think Lachine was viewed as a, a a talent, you know, like a like a Hannah, somebody that could be around for a while, and right. everybody was afraid of that back then. I mean, you know, if you remember, like a Bob, he had a run, a solid run, a dominant run for like, you know three or four years, and then Barnett, and then, you know what I mean, and then Howerton, and, uh, you know, and then Donnie. We were really, like, we didn't want, we had a lot of pressure on us to win, and so the Lachine came, probably it was too much talent, and, and we started having personality issues. I won't say person. That's, that's kind of vague, right? But, I mean, there was definitely yeah. a difference in character between, like, Lachine and the Marina Bailey, and there's always a chemistry within the team that helps the yeah. total ambience, right? The total uh, – and yeah. I would say we upset a little bit. And, um, Hannah, Hannah, and, was probably, but, Hannah was probably disgusted with Ronnie. <laughs> you know what? I got I to gotta, – you know, this is one of the things where when the kids are out playing and the parents are naive, and I, I heard probably rumors of – you know, the guy wouldn't practice. We we give him practice bikes, and they'd come back looking brand new, right? right. And, and and everybody would make. You know how I'm probably the last one to know, right? I mean, yeah. You know, maybe the mechanics know, and maybe the other riders know, but nobody's gonna rat him out. And you know, I don't know how I don't know how effective I was at. Um, you know, Ronnie, you got to straighten your act out. I mean, I was probably more focused on the technical stuff and make sure the bikes and, you know, making sure we had some kind of a mechanical advantage. And right. that was maybe what I, my general character and background. And if I did that and we truly had a better mousetrap, well, then it was easier. And then maybe those guys indirectly felt pressure to perform because, you know, everybody else is working hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those and, are- and But the Lachine thing, I mean, gosh, what a talent. And I don't have to say big talent and gone bad, but, I mean, it's uh, – it's one of those things where, you know, on any given day, that guy could run away. I watched him. There was a dash. There, yeah, there's a there's a hundred stories like this. But when Lachine was on, I mean, he was so smooth and he was so fast and fluid and, you know, 
but I think it was his lifestyle kept him from winning championships or being consistent. So. He, he won one for you guys. Um, That's right. And uh, and what was the story about the bike? What were you going to say? No, the story on the bike was in was in '95. Um, so they, of course they had production regulations slated for. I'm sorry. '85. Um, yeah. '85, and production regulation was slated for '86. And our '95, the production bike was going to have a power valve on it. We up until that point we had the attack system where right. it had a plenum chamber on the exhaust pipe and it actually on some bikes it worked pretty good but overall we thought the Yamaha's made a little bit more torque and had a little bit more mm-hmm. mm, controllability you know low RPM response and uh, so then we were trying to get Honda to come up with something competitive or superior to that so they you know when the production they had to come up with a base for that system and they did so in the in the 95 I'm sorry the 85 bike and it was an electronic power valve it was a square brooch valve that changed the port time exhaust port timing and and exhaust port volume but this one was electronically controlled to where it had less friction than the mechanical system and had a Japanese engineer programming it with a laptop on opening and closing and the speed and it was like Formula One racing to the industry at the time which you know didn't have chips and computers and all all that stuff, right? Right, right. Yeah. So they get these bikes, and I remember Lachine. Typically, all the riders in the beginning of uh, January, we planned to go to warm-up races or some of the Golden State races, some of the Stu Peters CMC or whatever, right? Just to just to shake things out and get, you know, a lot of times people get arm pump in January. That way, you're ready for Anaheim or whatever the first race is. And Lachine was like, these things are so unbelievably fast. I don't want to go to any of the races and show people the advantage we have. And he got kind of everybody else to buy into that. I mean, they, they were the most expensive, the most exotic. And mm-hmm. But I'm still one for trying to shake things out and making sure that, you yeah, know, reality follows the fantasy, right? Right. And uh, in any case, and it's, it's hindsight, so it's easy to say, but that year, again, we probably had, well, for sure we had the most expensive bikes, and we had the most talent for riders with four top-level guys, including Ronnie, Bob, David, and um, Johnny. Yep. But uh, we didn't, I don't think we won anything that year. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was kind of a year like, I'm sure you've heard stories when they developed fuel injection, trying to get controllability and linearity and all that. Out, right. Mm-hmm. Even though on a dyno it does something really nice, but in reality there was Bailey looped out in one of the super. I think it was Atlanta, Georgia. The right hander coming out of a rut, and the thing came on so fast, and he was laying off the ground before he even started to roll the throttle off. And Ronnie did the same thing, and when racing Ward for the championship and. In the Rose Bowl, yeah. and there was almost issues of it was too good to be true, and it was. We didn't. It wasn't really. It was a good development tool, but yeah. it didn't really win championships. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Now it's time to pay some bills. Thanks for listening to the BTOSports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike car body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at BTOSports.com. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I've done these with Bailey and Dogger, and uh, Lachine's a friend of mine now. Um, I could bench race with the guy for, for, for days. And as a fan, the 85 Hondas were the trickiest bikes ever. But both of those guys said, 
Eh, our bikes were better in '84. You know? Yeah, um, they were. That's yeah. funny that, that that's funny that it works out like that. Yeah. You know, you know what's a real quick comment? You know what's funny about the 84 thing was uh, there was a re- – I'm not a world economist again. I'll, I'll, I don't balance my own checkbook. The <laughs> wife does. But I'll make this comment that um, there was a re- – and, and people in racing don't know about – the, the problems of sales and marketing in business, right? But there was a there was a recession in the early '80s, right? And I remember having to go to Japan, negotiate with the factory about, well, we got to spend less money on hardware. So there was kind of like an A level of hardware because we had four guys and a B level of hardware, right? Right. So you know, going into the '84 season, I think Johnny, you know, I think Bob, of course, ended up like. Um, he had the magnesium engine cases, and he had all the, the high-level stuff. And I think Johnny had engines that were uh, based on production crankcases and based on production crankshafts. And I think they were somewhat trying to get ready for production regulations in, in 86. But at the same time, it was a cost-cutting measure, right? Right, right. And uh, so they were only like a half-works bike. Well, Johnny ended up... You know, Johnny ended up beating everybody in Supercross that year. He was dominant. He, he ran away from everybody. And I always got kind of a kick out of that, that he beat all the trick bikes or the expensive bikes. And and, uh, and was that rider choice, or was more like, hey, Hannah's our... No, hey, it wasn't rider choice. Yeah, okay. You know, it was, and it's hard to manage that. I mean, Roger and I always wanted everybody to feel that there was no favorites, that there was no biases, and we were really against having a two-tiered equipment thing, it put us in a difficult situation. Right, right, of, yeah, for sure. You know, this guy gets the magnesium and all the special parts coming from Japan, and, oh, by the way, you're just you're running the production parts, you know. Yeah, and then we got, uh, then Not, not entirely. Work. I mean, it was obviously warmed up with the, a lot of the same right. cylinder specs and exhaust pipes and carbs, and, but it, the base was more production. Um, and the 85s had a fuel pump, did they not? An electronic fuel pump in them? Uh, 85, 85 fuel pump. Yeah. I think a lot of them had any any bike that had um, any bike that had a low gas tank. Yeah. It had it had a vacuum fuel pump. Okay. Yeah. That, that ran off the pressure of the crankcase, and then there was a subchamber, and it pumped gas to the top, and gravity fed back to the carburetor. Yeah. Um, that's what was required to run a gas volume or gas tank that was mm-hmm. at least the same level or even a lower level than the carburetor. Right. What? Uh, uh, I don't remember the electronic fuel pump, but you're probably right. Yeah, oh, I could be wrong. You're Dave Arnold. I'm just a fan. No, I don't know. Um, Dave Arnold is now. You know, when you get my age, you start forgetting <laughs> things too. Uh, what about this twin cylinder 125 that Omera told me? he rode uh do you know anything about it yeah there was um there was all kinds you know it's funny when you know you're running this race effort and you think you're going to get all the cool stuff right but mm-hmm. there was a lot of one-off prototype conceptual works bikes built and and tested at that period of time there was two cylinder 125s that were tested uh, me probably even race in Japan championship for a few events. There was two cylinder 250s, same deal. After Yamaha came out with a rotary valve 125, Honda came out, you know, which was yeah. the problem with the rotary valve is, you know, everything, the engine's wide and the carburetor's on the side and all that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Honda had a prototype where the rotary valve was on the back of the motor. Um, they did, yeah, that was right before we went to um, case read engines, but they they were trying all kinds of stuff. Yeah, uh, automatic too, an automatic two fifty. They also they also had an automatic two fifty. Or do you not want to talk and, about it? Is that am I? <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. fine. It's okay. fine. I mean, it's actually a lot of that technology. You know, so the discussion then was that um, you know. 
this motocross thing was growing in popularity mm -hmm. and you know off-road i mean still xr sales were doing pretty good at the same time for people riding in the desert and off-road but i think the japanese were concerned that it was still it's it's, it's uh it's kind of like doing extreme sports now like it was too narrowly focused too much of a niche i mean how many guys you know how user-friendly is it i mean yeah the the cool kid on the block knows how to pop wheelies and do slides and shift and clutch and but then right. you know it would be more of a mass market bike if they could develop it automatic and the average guy didn't have to coordinate all that stuff right, right. right. and uh, just turn the throttle if they thought it would be um it would be more appealing and more effective and more user-friendly for for a bigger base right. and uh, so they developed this automatic concept and it sucked a little bit of power of course having that type of transmission that transmission is very similar to what they ended up running on one of their atvs years later oh yeah um yeah but that thing was pretty trick. They could change the gearing on that thing by electronically changing a chip, and they could make it a you know they could make it an off-road bike or a motocross bike, or right, right. Okay. and they had a little shift lever on it to where it wasn't all automatic. You could kind of override it if you wanted to downshift and use the engine more for a brake and things like that. Uh, was that the coolest but, thing you've ever seen, or was there was there the automatic? Yeah. Um, it was. I mean, you know, there's a lot of times. I gotta, I don't know, I gotta be, I gotta be honest, like, uh, the novelty of two-cylinder 125s, I mean, uh, to a pure engine guy like Cliff White, he loved it, you know, he was yeah. uh, one of our best mechanics, if not the best mechanic ever, I mean, he was right. John Michelle Bale's mechanic, and Bailey's mechanic, and George Hahn, I mean, he's won more championships for Honda, but he loved that stuff, because right. he was an engine guy, and the high RPM, and all the stuff, and I don't know, they, they were irritating to me, I mean, they, <laughs> you could hardly hear them shift, and they just yeah. sounded, they were at like 16,000 RPM the whole time, Right, right, right. and, uh, <laughs> I was like, man, what's it going to be like having a whole track full of these things? And yeah. and then the automatic, you know, you know, maybe it's a little bit of an elitist comment, but you know, if people don't know how to shift. You know, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. You're like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, shift it. Um, yeah, just freaking learn how to use the clutch and shift. I mean, my, I remember my brother never really was that effective riding dirt bikes, and I always got kind of a kick out of that because challenge of being really good riding a dirt bike, right, is to be able to coordinate and do all that, so um, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought it was neat, but uh, I didn't, you know, I was surprised it actually went in in at a pro level. I think uh, some of the guys were reluctant to race it. The, you know, for one reason, it, it, of course, it was a totally different riding style, right. but uh, I remember Bailey finally won a Supercross on it in Spain. Not Bailey, John Michelle Bale. Uh huh. And uh, he didn't want to ride it anymore after that. And he had, he was a really good test rider, and he had him refine it in a couple, three, or four different ways. And then he finally won a Supercross, and uh, they wanted him to campaign it, whether it be in the states or that he really wanted the thing to get, uh, you know, more mileage yeah. and more development. He's like. Uh, no, if I if I can't do this full time, and if this is not the way, you know, it's going to ruin my whole technique and my whole riding style. But I mean, ba Bailey, you didn't have to put your foot down in the corner. You you know, it did a lot of things really good, right? Right, right, yeah. So, um, let me ask you this: if uh, if Lachine doesn't get busted for drugs in Japan at the end of '85, does he come back to Honda, or was that a tipping point where you guys were like, "All right, we're not having you on the team"? No. That was a formality. I mean, yeah, of course, was. of course, you know, it was a totally big deal for 
like for this to happen in the first place, yeah, and for that to happen in in, in front of the Japanese and all the management. I mean, I was, was in uncertain terms. You know, I had to drive out there with one of the executives from HRC and uh-huh. and pick the guy up, and he wasn't happy about leaving work, and and <laughs> and, and, and especially for that type of an issue. Yeah. And I think Honda had to post a bond or do something, right? And then. Right. They t- they told me that uh, I had to ship them home the next day, and that you know yep. maybe they'd had conversations, obviously with American Honda, but uh, yeah. I was told by whatever management I was interacting with in Japan that I had to fire them and send them home. And that was it. So oh. I had to do all that, but again, it was a bit of a formality because you know he'd already been talking to Roy Turner about racing the Kawasaki the yeah. following season, so it, it didn't change fate that uh, much. So then you hired RJ in '86, and uh, what a find that is again. Production rule, which everybody thought was going to bring Honda down, uh, yeah. production rule comes in, and you guys show up with still the best bikes in the class. And uh, hey, '86 was, you know, if I said '82, and a lot of the worst bikes in the early '80s were the best that we ever had. And um, the '86 production bike was all of them, all the development from Japan. Those things were unbelievable. I mean, yeah. we also. Mickey Diamond won the 125 Nationals, and that thing ran like a 250. I mean, it yeah. was he was he rode really good. It was kind of a it was totally unexpected. I think that he could win the championship. Well, yeah, from, he was he was riding Husky 500s the year before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and and uh, but I mean that that oh they won everything worldwide. They did a T-shirt in Japan. I mean they won. They won everything. They won. He won the 500. Yeah. Thorpe won in Europe. Johnson won the 250s. I mean, the, the, yeah. whoever was in Japan, it might have been Tofukuji, I believe it was. Uh-huh. They won everything worldwide. It was an unbelievable year. Yeah. And so- and, and I remember Kenny Clark, you know, he, he was a Yamaha manager at the time. Ironically, the guy that didn't hire me how many years before. But uh, I remember him telling me in, in uncertain terms that you guys are going down as soon as this production regulation. You and all your money and fancy yeah, equipment. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was always a bit offended to that mentality because... You know, money doesn't always buy championships. I mean, it doesn't hurt, and it's and mm. it certainly can help. But I mean, it has to be hard work, and it has to be you got to be smart at the same time, right? Well, yeah, Kawasaki yeah. was investing. I mean, their bikes were also pretty trick, and I mean, Warren yeah. was making it happen, but not to the extent that that Honda was. And their they, their yeah. bikes were certainly pretty trick. I've seen some of them. Norm Bigelow brings them out to some supercrosses every now and then, and they were pretty trick too. You know? Very trick. I mean, I remember Kawasaki was experimenting with four-speed gearboxes and three-speed gearboxes mm-hmm. for Supercross, and right. they, you know, all those guys, all those factories. I mean, they had some very smart engineers, and they also had some good team management and good team technicians, like you mentioned, Bob Oliver and John R. and Roy Turner and, yeah. and um, uh, Rick Ash, a bunch of guys. Rick Ash, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, there's a lot of talent in all these factories, and it was. It was very competitive at that period of time. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you, 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 but as good as the 86s were, 87s might have been better. Uh, rear disc brakes and you know, sort of a refined uh, style. Uh, I had yeah. 87. I loved it. I remember. I mean, I was just a kid, but I had an 87. Yeah. Awesome bike. Um, 87 was a refined 86. The, as a team, there was a couple things that started to happen. I mean, uh, we talked about Johnny doing well over in Europe, and that was his last year in 86. And maybe it was. Um, 
you know, we had we had started to become we had a lot of success in the early 80s, and then all of a sudden, you've got three guys, and now they've all got agents, and now their demands, and you know, the yeah. Japanese also, they went through a recession, and I, I think at the end of 86, they, I mean, they, 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 they almost finished one, two, three in every, it wasn't even first place, it was yeah. one, two, three yep. in every category. In that Supercross, the Bailey and Johnson had the, the dog fight of, of the decade, Anaheim, which was yeah. Anaheim 86. I mean, we got one, two, three, and five, I believe, Mickey Diamond got fifth. It was crazy. Right, right. Yeah. But um, And so their agents and, you know, their demands, and all of a sudden they, they started to lean the team out, and Johnny got let go for 87, which broke all of our hearts because he was an original member and, mm-hmm. you know, part of the family and all that. But, uh, you know, and then right after that, Ricky gets hurt. and, and uh, David. Well, I'm sorry, right after that, Bailey gets hurt. Right. And then Ricky gets hurt, and, and, it, and it was there was a period of time I remember, and you probably don't because we regrouped pretty quick with Stanton, which was totally unexpected. But mm-hmm. there was a race I was at after Johnny was let go, Bailey got injured, Ricky got injured in the national, and I was at a Supercross in um, Detroit, Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't have any riders in the main event. Really? Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but then, like. You know, you you pull Mickey out of nowhere, Husky 500s, and he's winning. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, he leaves, which well, I did one of these with him, and he tells me it was a massive regret. You know, he took the money from Yamaha. Um, yeah. He leaves, but then Stanton comes in, who's just sort of this hardworking farm kid. RJ gets hurt, and all of a sudden Stanton's winning. You know, he's the, he's the man now. So I remember there was a race in Atlanta, and uh... – you know, if if you don't do one of these podcasts, it was one of the best races ever because, you know, Ricky Ricky was dominant. Although mm-hmm. Bailey was a fierce competitor in '86, you know, and but but Ricky was the guy that year, and Jeff Ward was a fierce competitor, and you know there was there was other guys, but uh, right. you know Ricky was clearly the guy, and uh, but but going into the following going into the following season, you know Bailey was pretty focused to he. he didn't did not like he did not like Ricky being the number one guy. I mean, right. he was kind of a Yamaha guy. You know, your first marriage or your first, you know what I mean? The association between Yamaha, even though he was a support guy, right. you know, Bailey felt like he was one of the original Honda and Johnny. And, you know, so Bailey um, was pretty focused on not allowing that to become too comfortable, that status and that, that, that championship mm-hmm. for, for Ricky. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he got hurt just soon after that. But the, the story where I was kind of going with that, and I got the sidetrack with, Stanton was kind of brought in for, I don't want to say filler, but, you know, he was right. he was kind of a, a, a sidekick, doesn't even, but he was, um, you know, Ricky liked him, and Ricky was lobbying for him, and he was Ricky's yep. friend, you know, to some degree, and, you know, we all liked Jeff, we all, you know, and it was, for an amateur guy, it was, there wasn't that many factories that actually had amateur riders campaigning 500s, and Jeff did that, we kind of needed that, you know, in, in, the, in the larger displacement class, and we had Johnny for, previously for the 125, and then we had Mickey, but um, anyway, my story is for, right after Ricky got hurt, that, that series was wide open, and it was for anybody to win, and it really Stanton stepping up and and taking control of the championship was 
uh, it floored me. It was as big as Magoo winning four motos in in Europe. Yeah, really, I mean, huh? I mean, there was Guy Cooper, and then there was Ward, and there was Kishner, and there was I mean, yeah. there was five or six guys. Go back and look at that year at the race in Atlanta, Georgia, and I don't think anybody knew once Ricky was out of the picture who was supposed to win that year, right? Or that right. at that point in time. Yeah, no, absolutely. It wasn't. It wasn't like Jeff was the clearly the second best guy or anything like that. No, oh. he wasn't even at all. And man, he. Uh, I think Jeff just man, you know, he just manned up. Mm-hmm. You know what? That was as good. It might be premature, but it's as good a time as any. And I'll give Jeff. Jeff was really strong at that point in time. I mean, you know, he had a lot of. He had a really good team behind him, and he had a good relationship, good tutelage. The, uh, Ricky helped him a lot, especially yeah. in the earlier. Uh, as soon as Stanton started to be starting to win races, that that relationship fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah, I was going to ask. That was one of my list of questions. How was that when RJ got back from his wrist injury? I mean, he was. It, it was. It was terrible. I mean, yeah. uh, I, you know. I, you know, it's one of those things to where a, a smooth team is a team to where no one's a threat to each other, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm the number one guy. You know, if you went five years later when Jeremy was winning, and then there was a Doug Henry who was a damn good rider, but he was he was good in outdoor, and he was good in the 125, and then there was a, you know what I mean? There was right. a better balance, right, right. and there was much more synergy. When, when Ricky came back... Oh my gosh! It turned into a, a terrible situation. I mean, <laughs> uh, not that Ricky, Ricky shouldn't have come back and 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 uh, and and regained the position that that he left. Right. But um, you know, he was injured. He wasn't riding at the same level. But you know, he had this. You know, he was trying to defend that status. You know, mm-hmm. and then Jeff had stepped up. Right. Right. But. Is Ricky going to be supportive of that, or is he going to help Jeff? You know what I mean? It's yeah. uh, it's an awkward situation, you know. And Jeff, does he want to let it go? I mean, he's just trying to do what he's told to do and expected and paid to do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then and then you throw Bale comes into the picture. I had the champion. I had three guys that thought they were the number one guy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, it was terrible. And uh, you know, it's not like you, you. It's not like you didn't appreciate any one of them, but. Right. It, it was it was hard to handle. Um, and then also too, talk about picking up unknown riders. You pick up Kurdowski in '89, three-digit yes. guy, and he wins the 125 national title for you. You know? Yes, that's uh, right. That's uh, right. Uh, again, Kudrowski, Yes, that's right. And Kudrowski, Jeff got along good, and Kudrowski kind of fit in. You know, he was a real yeah. blue-collar, hard-working. You know, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. He was a great guy for the so, fit of our team. Got along with you know Jeff and. Again, that all became even with Kudrowski, It was when when Bale came on the team. He, I think, he had a really hard time um, sharing the limelight, whatever you want to call it. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to bag on him, but Bale's very focused on with Bale. He's a he's an individual, very strong-willed individual, very manipulative <laughs> at that point in time, individual, and it created a lot of headaches for me and Kudrowski and Stanton and everybody involved. I mean, yeah, like to, just to try to balance all that out. Let's talk about that a little bit. In 90, now you have Bale, Kurdowski riding 125 Nationals together. Uh, you got Bale, Stanton, RJ riding 250 Supercrosses together. Um, yeah. Uh, and the mechanics were warring, because Dan Bentley, a friend of mine, told me, you know, they were yeah. war. Uh, you, what was the worst incident? What was the worst fire you had to put out between everybody? Um, you know, it was all bad. I won't even sugarcoat it. I mean, the tension within the team, you, you couldn't have cut it with a chainsaw, and I'm not 
trying to uh, <laughs> be theatrical here, but man, it, it had a lasting. I'm sure that period of time had a lasting impression till this day on everybody involved. It was, you know, it was everything that we were trying to do in the '80s and the pressures of winning. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I think at the time originally it was the team, right? It was, you know, it started out being for America, right? And then it was right. the team, and then it, and then it almost turned into the individual, right? Yeah. And then I couldn't have had three. You know, I, I wasn't like I had three guys that were number one championship level guys, and right. it was just it was going to be a train wreck, and it truly was. <laughs> and um, yeah, the tension, the tension. Oh my gosh, I the quit. tension between Ricky. You know, I mean, ultimately Ricky tried to come back and and uh, and really his wrist. I mean. Yeah. And that's unfortunate for Ricky. I mean that whole that whole thing. I mean it's fortunate for Honda that we were able to have guys like Stanton step up and boy, Jeff, there wasn't anybody that did was how did, talk about stepping up. I mean yeah. not only did he win Supercross and not only did he win I mean he picked up exactly where Ricky left off. Yeah. And um but but he went over to Trophy to Nations and he and he single handedly dominated those events and then mm-hmm. and pulled it out of the bag on not one occasion but almost every occasion, you know. Right. He was the guy that, you know, ended up being the the you know, the the, the star that won it for the whole group, you know. Um and how history might be different because R J when he until he broke his wrist, he had won five out of or six out of seven supercrosses. He was still, he was dominating, and in a in an instant, breaking a wrist, his career changed. And we who knows how good Stanton would have been, right? Yeah, I think I, I think it would have changed. The, the whole dynamic never would have changed like that. Right, and right. Of course, Stanton would have gotten better, but was he yeah. ever gonna? I mean, you know, Tommy. I'm not calling Stanton a Tommy Croft, but Tommy Croft was an exceptionally talented rider, but Tommy Croft never beat Marty Smith, you know? Right, right, right. And, you know, if Marty wasn't there, Tommy Croft, I think he won Trans Ams against, you know, Roger and everybody, right? Yeah. I mean, Tommy Croft and Puyallup, Washington, back in the 70s, would come from behind, and, and he had unbelievable rides, right? But mm-hmm. you know, I guess I'm trying to say that there's a dynamic or, a, oh, yeah. you know, and, and I think Ricky... Ricky really got shortchanged on that deal. I mean, he was really set up to win for years. Mm-hmm. Now, and uh, oh. probably Stanton, it wouldn't have been nearly as easy. I mean, if, for sure he would have progressed, but um, I don't think it would have been quite the same dynamic. And maybe, you know, I, I might have been wrong there. Maybe it would have been a year or two later, and it would have been the same situation, and right. one of them would have uh, gone yeah. to another team because they wanted to win or something like that. Now, then let's get the let's get the real story as much as you know, because I've done a podcast with Kudrowski and I did one with Bale and and yeah. uh, I actually did one with Bale and Stanton on the same time yeah. on the same phone yeah. but what, now Cliff was modifying JMB's 125 and it was better than Kudrowski's because Shane Nally didn't quite have the same tricks as Cliff and then when Bale got hurt Kudrowski got Bale's motor and now he was even madder because he realized that Cliff was doing cool stuff to uh, I, I think I think I'll make a blanket statement by saying um, <laughs> Bale. You know, I mean, and it's, it's not even isolated toward that that engine. But okay, there, I'm sure there's truth to what you're saying. Yep, yep. But Bale was an exceptional uh, development rider. I mean, and, and a lot of guys are really fast, but Bale knew exactly. Now, 
maybe that maybe what he liked didn't directly apply to because of writing style or whatever, right? Yeah. But I mean, Bale, black and white, knew what he needed as a tool to win races, and he could articulate that. This is what I want. Here's the weakness, and that's really good for uh, you know. Cliff is also an exceptional engine tuner. I mean. Right. He's a he takers and he refines and he that's pro, sometimes that's the best development is is that level of uh, incremental detailed refinement right mm -hmm. and those bikes were immaculate and and but I would say that uh, but Bale was paranoid anything that he had <laughs> any testing you know a lot of times I would have Bale just. Uh, you know, I was all I was. I'm a conceptual guy. I mean, I'm trying to make all the Hondas better. I'm right, trying to right. raise the bar for chassis uh, development, raise the ball, the bar for suspension and, and engine and balance. And you know, you're, you're, it's a, it's a, it's a weapon, right? It's corporate war. You're trying to up the ante, and Bale being one of your best tools, you're going to utilize it. And there was times where he would test something, and then I would say, well, you can't have it right now because we don't have enough, or I don't know what it was. And you know, he didn't like that role. He didn't like the the guy that, you know, and he probably even went overboard. I mean, he was very paranoid about being um, used or abused that way, right? I'm the guy with all the brains, and then you're using me to give that technology to all these other people that are trying to beat me, right? Right, right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, what you're probably saying with Kudrowski's engine, there was some truth, but, um, I'll, but I'll also say Dale didn't like anybody. You know, he, he didn't like Stanton. It wasn't Kudrowski. It was anybody. It was Ricky. It was Stanton. It was Kudrowski. Anybody that was going to get any recognition on a Honda was yeah. is not going to have good things at that point in time. And then, you know, also too, you know, like Roger was kind of a bail guy, a big supporter of bail. And you were trying to put yeah. fires out everywhere. <laughs> you know, um, I, I really was trying to put out the fires. And I, even in Roger's defense, and, and people are going to say I'm a little bit biased here, but what are you going to do with Bale? Uh, take, okay, Roger's European and Bale's European. But look at the talent. Are you going to race against that? Do you want to just say, you know, Japan didn't want Bale to come to the United States. They didn't I mean, Japan that, was yeah. telling me not to talk to the guy. But if he's going to come, I mean, and he already is a Honda guy. Don't you want him under your umbrella? I mean, even with all the trouble, yeah. do, do, you, do you really want to be, you know, he won championships, right? Yeah, yeah. Do I really want to be racing him on a Kawasaki? I mean, I didn't. I think it put Roger and I in a very difficult situation. I mean, yeah. you know, I know Bale probably used or communicated with Roger. You know, he's European and French. And I mean, but yeah. I mean, he chewed on me plenty too. I mean, Roger wasn't <laughs> the only guy being chewed on. Yeah. Um, talk about you know he he breaks his arm. He's out of the title chase. He was leading the points. Breaks his arm. Uh, comes back. You have to bench him because he says he's not going to ride for Kudowski. Can you talk about that day a little bit and how that? Went sure, and, and, but I'll make a comment that um, yeah, it's my um, it's my waiver or my excuse is that Dale uh, Dale had a history of he is super motivated on he, he can't be stagnant at that point in time mm -hmm. you know that guy was very strong willed in what his goals were and when he won the 125 world title in Europe he didn't defend it he went to the 250 right. when he won the 250 he did not defend it he came to the United States he came to the United States without the promise of a works level ride I mean mm -hmm. Roger lent him his van you know I think Roger might have borrowed a 
practice bike, I mean a production bike, and Bale just wanted to come to America and race. Now the United States had become the premier form of racing. I mean, it wasn't enough to be a world champion, right? You had to come here and win Supercross, and mm -hmm. Bale wanted to be, he wanted that level of recognition, that level of status. So I, I'm saying that, so after he, and he did that, ultimately, everybody knows the story, I mean, he won the 250 Supercross, and that was his goal. He never set out to win what did he win that year? Was the 250 National and 500 National the same yeah. year? I forget. Yeah. yeah, he won 91. He won all three classes. And then, he won all three. Yeah. And you know what? If you ask, I'm sure he didn't. He he wasn't even focused on the outdoor. Yeah. I don't think he even really cared that much. I mean, the, the outdoors kind of like fell on his lap, right? Yeah, I mean, he never won a race. Most, he never won a race. Huh? In the, he never won a, a race in the 250 class that year. He just won. No, yeah, I mean, I don't even think I remember. I mean, I remember him like being focused beyond belief to win the Supercross Championship. And I remember him, like, as far as his general demeanor, he was, like, making a big joke about the other championships. Like, well, if nobody wants to win, I'll, I'll go. You know, okay, that's – I mean, one of the races was in um, – hey, do you remember the big flood race in, in Hangtown? Yeah, Hangtown. Where the yeah. levee broke? Yeah. I mean, it was and, – and everybody was going to protest and all. And, and Bale, oh, you know, what the hell? I mean, he didn't care if, he, if, if the race – he looked at it as an opportunity, like – you know, and if everybody's going to wimp out, I'm going to freaking ride, and I'm going right. to. And he wrote it like uh, I think John Dow did really well, and yeah, you Dow, know, Dow a lot of people yeah. broke down. I think mm -hmm. Stanton broke down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but I think Bale. It probably helped. It, it certainly improved his chances of winning the title. And he he rode that thing like he stopped before the water crossing, and we'd look and like a trials rider and pick the best line. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess my point. So my point is, after he won 250 Supercross. Um, he, you know, he won those other titles in 91, but that guy was out of there. Even though we had another year with him in 92, yeah. that guy was focused on going to Europe and going road racing. Yeah, like he, he never he never stood still, huh? He just conquered and moved and, on, conquered yeah, and moved on. And, and at the end of the 91 season, you know, we all have to go to Japan, and, and he started saying, well, I'm not going to go to Japan unless, you know, you get 250 works road racers, and unless you get me a road race contract for after and all this stuff, right? I'm like, man, I have zero. So... I'd be I'd be spending eighty percent of. I mean, he's the champion guy, number one guy, and right. I was, you know, trying to line. I, motocross didn't even have that level of influence or status with road race. I mean, yeah. it was pulling some major strings. But then we finally set up the road race truck and the track, and in the middle of the motocross test, everybody shut everything down, and the other riders were highly ticked off about all this. By the way, I yeah, mean, yeah. it looked like the JMB show, and they were second fiddle, you know. And he ran off to to do the. Oh, man, he was happy. I mean, he, oh, my gosh, that made his day. But my point being, going into the, the 92 season yeah. uh, and, and getting injured on the 125, that 125 championship, he, if you put it in terms of how competitive was that relative to winning everything in 91, yeah. that was a walk in the park, right? Right, right, right. But, it, but he was in, I, I remember, I remember, I, I just remember him being totally preoccupied and not taking, setting up the bike seriously and coming out and testing and, you know. Right. 
I, and to, in my eyes, he got injured because he wasn't as focused. Yeah. And, uh, he, he, you know, that, he was winning. I, I hope that doesn't come off as a cheap shot, but that's that's really the way I, I viewed it. And so, therefore, once that level of a talent of a rider didn't win that, that championship, I think he started to change all his attention to all these other things, you know, Kudrowski and everybody stealing from him and the team, <laughs> you know, um, you know what I mean? Taking yeah. advantage of him and all this stuff, right? I mean, oh my God, it was sick. So you, uh, and, so you come to him, you yeah. go to him, and you say, "Hey, I, I need you to pull over if Kardowski's behind you." So this was kind of before texting and before emails, and right. I kept sending him telexes or faxes or I forget what. But uh, you know, how's it going? And of course, I'm trying to express concern, but because of the history of, of the, some of the problems we had with Stanton and Supercross and, and, you know, Ricky Johnson. I mean, I knew in a relationship with Kudrowski, I mean, you know, Bale was going to come back for Bale. And, uh, and, and as the manager of the, the Honda team, I needed him to help Kudrowski. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was asking him about his physical condition and his arm and all that, and he, and he was being very elusive and not answering directly and hard to get a hold of. And, uh-huh. you know, I'm, I'm still trying to show compassion and concern and all that, like, you know, you want to, but at the same time, I've got to win a title, and I'm like, so finally, I don't even really get to talk to him about it before the morning of the event, you know, the French press is there, and uh-huh. he's finally in his truck, and I have to jump up there, and it's unfortunate, I mean, it's not that I didn't try, but he knew exactly what he was doing, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was there yeah. to win a race and prove a point. Yep, and he, he but, was avoiding you because he knew the news that you were going to tell him. I mean, Of he, course, he, yeah. of course, yeah. you know, and I'm like, I GMB, you know, he's giving you're giving me the runaround, and you know, on a personal level, we're friends and we respect each other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on a professional level, you know, he's got a different objective, and I and I just said, I, you, you know, the situation, and and you know. I mean, if it comes down to the team or somebody or you, you, you having to help Mike, we got to help Mike. And he goes, uh, it's never going to come down to that. And I said, you're right. And I hope it doesn't. But, you know, things – but if it does, i got to know right. that you're in that corner, you know. And uh, he's like – a real adamant, it'll never be that. You guys try to orchestrate all this stuff. It'll never purely come down to, you know, you controlling all those elements. I said, you're probably right, but if it does, are you going to be there for me, right? Yeah. And the answer was no. And I said, I can't tell you how much I respect an honest reply. You're not racing. Yeah, yeah. And it was simple as that. And it wasn't easy. And I think I think he accepted it and he created all this big hoopla. But I, I think that, uh, and unfortunately, he had to come all the way from Europe and the whole deal. But, I mean, I just couldn't go through that again, you know. Right, I couldn't right. have him foil a championship for purely selfish. Um, so how did he take it? Uh, he was like, all right, cool. Um. You said you're I not. Think, you said you're I not think, you know, No, he's not. He's not going to be all right with that. But I think he understood that. Of course, he didn't like it. And then the French went ballistic. Uh-huh. The French press. Oh <laughs> yeah. my gosh, they, you know. And he's the, he's the ninety-one, and he's this, and he's the guy. You know, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they couldn't yeah. believe it. And I said, you, they, they, you don't understand. I remember um, Xavier, some of the guys from Motor Review. Yep. You don't understand. You know, that's that's like asking somebody of John Michelle's status to, to eat shit, you know, to for that, you know, because of the relationship like, and all that. And I said like uh, Jesus of, of Yeah, Jesus but it's for friends. it's for the common goal. I have right. to do that every day. I mean, I don't call it quite that same terminology, but I mean there's things you have to do because you have to do it, right? Yeah. 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 So 
it's that's the deal. And sometimes you like it. Sometimes it's not purely about the individual. Most of the time it is. Yeah. I mean, but anyway. Um. Yeah. I mean, when I spoke to him on the podcast about it, he was like, "They said I could not ride." I said, "Okay." <laughs> no, like, he totally, no, he yeah. totally was. Yeah. He, exactly. He, not not uh, exactly. upset. Not upset. I, I, nothing, I think he would. Yeah. And he, of course, he would rather not ride than, than than help. I mean, it's always a sensitive thing. I mean, look at the Bob. Did Bob like? You know. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Bob never liked it. You know, you asked me before if Bob minded helping Bailey. I don't still remember Bob minded. He minded. You know, it, it kind of depends on the relationship of those two guys, right? Yeah. It just Bob made it, it super obvious to everybody. <laughs> oh my God, Bob made Bob wanted to. Be, Go on record. He wanted to get paid, and he wanted, and he yeah. says I didn't pay him. I swear I did. But anyway, and and he wanted the recognition of, well, I was the baddest guy. I got hurt, but it would have been mine. You know? Right, right. Yeah, funny, funny. And yeah. and in '92, Bale. What's funny is that if you look back in the record books, and I wrote a story about this, Bale missed some races in 1990, but he was still the fastest guy in Supercross that year. If he hadn't got hurt, he might have won the 90 Supercross title. He might have won the 90 125 title. Um, and, and in '92. It was a sleepwalk, huh? Like, just you couldn't get through to him. That was it. I just, I just want to say he was preoccupied. I mean, <laughs> I think Bale was gone. In my mind, of course, I wanted him to be the same guy. But and even, even the Supercross Championship, you know, oh my God, all the stuff between him and Stanton. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he was night and day at that point in time, better than anybody on the track. Yeah. Yeah. And but uh, you know he gets pushed off the track. He blames it on Jeff. I mean it never should have come down to the last race, right? But right, right. in my mind he was preoccupied. You know you can't if you if you knew Bale. I mean his his whole being becomes consumed with with these um, with these goals he makes for himself, right? And yep. and his whole being was consumed with riding a road race bike next year. And and I got I talked to the Jalera guys, and if Honda's not going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then uh, L.A. Coliseum riding behind Bradshaw for a long time, um, refusing to pass Bradshaw, who was clearly feeling the pressure of the title. Um, yeah. But the uh, the 92 Supercross title for Stanton, that was pretty nice for you. Pretty unexpected, I guess, going in the last round. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. It was – oh, my gosh. It was uh, also this all the tension of the bail thing. Yeah. And yeah. now the bail, you know, the, the whole thing where – you know, Jeff had a shot now after the San Jose race, you know, and, and Bale getting pushed off or run off the track. Right. And then uh, now it came down. I mean, Bradshaw had the point advantage going into the Coliseum, and I think Jeff just put his nose down, and Jeff always just does what the best he can do, and the cards fall the way they can fall. I mean, right. you know, I don't think Jeff didn't try to manipulate a race. Jeff never tried to play mind games from what I knew of Jeff. I mean, right. Bale could manipulate races, manipulate people. Um, I mean, you know, he he, uh, he could read and play. It was a chess game to him, you know. But um, but anyway, going into that race, I would say that um, there was also some things with, with Stanton. I don't think Stanton was in his was as fast that year, even though Bale was the dominant guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I think Jeff had some problems. He was he lost a lot of weight, and his training had changed. And yeah. I'm not I'm not bagging on, but I want to say he was struggling a little bit. I mean, Bradshaw was the new up and coming guy, and he was fresh and spunky and cocky, and he was kind of the new Hannah, right, of the '70s. Right, right. And um, I I thought the championship was won going into the Coliseum, and I mean, of course, we're going to go through the motions, and yeah, but. It, 
oh my god it was drama beyond drama i mean you know bale's trying to sabotage jeff bale's trying to help bradshaw the whole suzuki team cooper tishner yeah forget all the guys four guys come behind the truck dave we want to talk to you cooper you know rode we had a great relationship when he was on a support right. and then works honda ride and yep. you know there was a lot of riders that didn't have a good relationship with bradshaw and those guys were like dave and everybody loved jeff right, right i mean right. jeff didn't have any enemies on the track mm-hmm. bradshaw had some yeah and cooper came and, up, uh, cooper gave up his those guys were like yeah. dave will do to tell jeff we're gonna do whatever we can to keep bradshaw back if any and he won't come around that's cooper talking right yeah, i mean yeah, if yeah. he's behind me he's not coming around oh. and uh you know and i was like i was like ready to cry i mean i'm like this is just too much i got other teams that want to help i got my own team you know <laughs> that doesn't and, help. Uh, <laughs> and, and the whole element of, of bradshaw um kind of season up like that. I mean, who'd ever seen that? I mean, even if you're not having a good day, there was something going on there. And then, yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, there was some real deep-seated, you know, it's only speculation. I think I've read some, but not all, of what he said about all that. Mm-hmm. But my gut feel is it's um, one of these child prodigy things where the parents drag their kids through, you know, I'm going to make them a star. And it's all for the parent, really, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it may not be really from the heart of the individual and I, I don't know I think it had something to do with that I mean it was just too much pressure for I mean he was a tough guy outwardly but I think it was too much and then uh, Dan Bentley said that Coliseum that day at the Coliseum in practice him and Bale got into it again Bale skidded in it, front of him or something and kicked up roost on him I don't I don't remember you know I, you know this thing this thing you're talking about called Kudrowski it's it's uh, and and talk about Redbud Michigan I mean it was 24 7 with Bale I mean it was just part of his MO it was uh, it was non-stop I mean yeah. he was effing with and and it wasn't even in your face it was those guys were fit to be tied yeah yeah and then Roger and I are like you know Roger has a tendency to believe bale i'm like this is all too funky i don't believe the guy's an angel right i mean i'm somewhere in the middle right i mean i'm trying to keep everybody happy but i don't i don't i don't believe you know sometimes there's people that just stir up drama right Mm -hmm. and that's that's, that's, that's part of their makeup, you know. They, yeah. yeah, Bentley said he was so mad, and that added to the drama, oh. you know, and, and just, oh, to be you at that time, I couldn't imagine it. Oh, um, man, it was not. That's why I'm bald today, you know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, that was a stressful period, and I said it in our earlier um, interview that I really think that um, that it took a toll on Jeff. I mean, I don't know why Jeff retired at 25, other than everybody involved in that whole era right. was worn out. Right, right. I mean, they were worn out. I think it was it was all of the 70s and half the 80s, and it was just too much. I mean, you know, it was racing. I don't want to get overly dramatic here, and and, and but uh, you know, it's hard on the family. It's a lot of travel, and uh, and then you got all this drama on top of it and and you know you got pressure from the factory at that time they wanted to win i mean they always want to win every factory every effort wants to win all the sponsors but back then it was it was not a a secret that uh you know these big corporations were you know they they had it out for each other and we were we were just the pawns trying to play that out right and uh uh it had to have been just, 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 yeah, just, just drama, I guess. Yeah, it was drama. It was unbelievable. I mean, and after the race, Jeff drops his bike and they hug and they break board. I mean, that, I mean, everybody, you know, Mike Goss is one of my favorite, you know, but.
to have that level of emotion, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and racing brings that out, of course. I'm not saying that Mike doesn't feel that every championship, every race. Right. But, uh, oh, my gosh. I think Manny probably felt like taking a five-year hiatus after that <laughs> event he, was over. He did quit soon after that to go sell tools in, in Idaho or something. You know, um, he did. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I think everybody just decided that, uh, yeah. you know, they didn't want to go down with the um, ship, and, and, and life was too short. It was, it was, it was, too, it was tough. And then, uh, well, maybe one of the reasons Stanton retired was by the time he retired, he was about 125 pounds. Um, his, yeah. ve- his vegetarian yeah. uh, diet, as he's told me many times, didn't quite work yeah. out. But uh, anyways, moving along. So you, yep. uh, you in, the, in, the, in the form of Diamond and Holland and RJ and Bale and Kudowski, you get lucky again, or not lucky, but you again, you, you sign this kid named Jeremy McGrath for 93. And yeah, and wow. Uh, <laughs> you know that was that was a lot of fun. And um, you know, Roger and I again, uh, we we did this year. A lot of a lot of times, you know, we have still today a very good friendship, a very good working relationship. I mean, we're not working together right now, but uh, I'd say at that point in time, you know, it was, a lot of these things were conceptual. Like, well, Honda's only going to give us this amount of resource, whether it be equipment or budget. And um, I think, you know, they had been looking for a corporate sponsor for years, and and uh, I was asking Jeff Sirwall, and, and, but in any case, this particular team, we did this, I called Mitch Payton from Pro Circuit, and I'm like, look, you know, we got to, we got to make something look bigger than just another Honda support team. I mean, I can fund a lot of it, but you got to make it look. You got to. So Mitch got all wound up in the concept of, you know, he's friends with Troy Lee. Troy Lee started doing artwork and painting the trucks with, you know, they had a relationship with Peak Antifreeze, right? right. The big mountaintop with White Peak. And, um, and I think I had a bid for a couple of riders. I really, Jeremy was a solid selection. I mean, he was, um, I think he might have been third place coming out of the previous season. But, I mean, maybe he was second. He was solid. But I, I don't know that people at that time would slate him as the next, you know, star guy. Yeah, I definitely um, don't think so, yeah. And and uh, in any case, you know, of course, solid works. And I think a few people, Cowie and a few guys, were kind of bidden for somebody that could be in a in a, in a solid potential to win the, the West Coast title. But, you know, we put together kind of a factory-level deal for Jeremy, but it was kind of run through the Mitch Pro Circuit Peak Antifreeze team. Right. And I... I you know, I, I picked two guys. I picked Swink and Jeremy. Swink was the wild card just because I'd seen him at a few events. I liked his style, and I kind of liked He was a little cocky and a little, a little, you know, he reminded me a lot of Johnny O'Mara. He was a little volatile, I thought, yep. but super, super talented. And then not a lot of experience really at that level, you know, more on the amateur level. And then and then uh, I think Roger picked um, Lamson, and I think he also picked Buell. Yeah, what a team. But in any case, yeah. any case, we did a photo session for that year, and I remember, um, oh, who's the guy? There's a guy that does all Honda's press kits and does a lot of the photography, mm-hmm. Ken Bariki. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and, you know, of course, at that time, we had Bale still riding in Stanton, and, and I remember Ken Bariki, and he'd been involved with helping Honda promote and do press kits and all this stuff years and years. And I remember him calling me, which I thought was kind of strange, going, that Jeremy kid, there's not one but usually they gotta look through hundreds of photos, right, for a press kit. Yep. And he goes, There's not one bad picture of that guy. <laughs> and and I'm not bagging 
on Stanton, but you yeah. probably look through 100 pictures and then you round it down to three or four or five, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Jeremy, that was the beginning. I mean, he was unstoppable on the 125, and and then the whole transition to the 250 was yeah. made history, right? Yeah, and he told me that him and his dad were pissed because they thought they were going to be on factory Honda, and here they are on some Yahoo Pro Circuit team. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, and that's true. And yeah. I, I guess it, it had to come push to shove. I mean, I probably would have made, Rude I point, probably yeah. would have angled that. I mean, we had a bunch of talent on the team and all this stuff, but. I mean, Jeremy for sure deserved that level of ride, and I tried the best I could. Mm-hmm. I guess it was, uh, I'm not saying visionary or anything, but I, I think I was trying to make the best of, um, you're balancing all these balls, right? you got the corporation going do more with less, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and so, and then, and then they're trying to find outside sponsors to come in. Well, now look at the sport, right? I mean, in a way, that peak antifreeze thing kind of kicked, you know, yeah. Jeff Glass did some of that with surf soap, and, right. you know, we had, and then after the Peak antifreeze. We did the one eight hundred collect thing with the factory team, but um, mm-hmm. we were trying to kind of get that going, and that was a total facade. I mean, I think Mitch Payne and I kind of—it was fun trying to make such a big deal, or it looked like it was such a big effort from Peak Antifreeze. When in reality, I probably funded ninety percent of it, and they put in fifty bucks or something. Or I'm sorry, maybe fifty grand. But. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, was yeah. one of your one of your regrets, and I'm sure it maybe wasn't your decision, but was letting Mitch go. Uh, you know, he still talks about how, how shocked and how disappointed he was that Honda could not offer him a, a deal for that 93 yeah. season. What, what no, went down there? Uh, no, it was, it was um, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of elements. I mean, yeah. Honda, I think, I'll make a blanket statement, and this isn't bagging on Honda. Or, I think that, um, you know, Honda's big, and the name of Honda, you know, I think they viewed that as a value to mm-hmm. somebody like a Mitch who's running a business or an outside sponsor. Like, I mean, they viewed the value of whether it's your, if you have a dealership or whether you have any relationship with us was, was going to be a value to somebody that was running a business like Mitch. Right. And I think so Honda was like, okay, we're going to do this the first year, I think it was a theoretical position, right? But yeah. then over time, you're going to carry more of that weight. And I think Honda's image of um, how long it would take for that transition was probably much more aggressive than the reality of what Mitch could absorb. And then, yeah. Yeah. you know, it rapidly turned, you know, Mitch could only do, it went from a four-rider to a two-rider to, mm-hmm. to, to another manufacturer, right? Yeah. And uh, I was disappointed. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm not yeah. blame. I'm not blaming anybody else, but I was disappointed because um, well, it's, a- it's water. It's water under the bridge. But look at Mitch. I always viewed him in the aftermarket in the motocross industry as having. He was a really. He's got his finger on the pulse, whether it be mm-hmm. riders or what needs to develop. And he's running a business, right? I mean, so he was able to, you know talk to sponsors much differently than the way I, I was spending Honda's money, right? right? Mitch is trying to get people to support the effort, not give all of his money away and, you know, and and develop hardware and win championships. And mm-hmm. he's got a few of them on the wall today, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, too, yeah. you as a, as a racer turned mechanic, and even though you're maybe a manager and a little bit delving yeah. into the corporate world, you can see the guys delivering wins and titles, and you're like, this yeah. is what we want. I mean, this is the yeah. bottom line. But I, I, I think I think that, um, I, you know, Rogers, again, very close friend of mine, mm-hmm. very close friend, and there's a handful of guys that I think, but I, I think the... Um, 
the importance of having somebody in that position or the right person in that position, Rick Zigfielder, right. another one for factory connection. But I mean, having the right person, the 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 um, the importance of that crew chief. Maybe it's in all sports. Maybe the guys that's a coach for USC or football or the Lakers. You know what I mean? Right. But, right. I would say in this industry that a lot of people, um, or there's a lot of efforts put together. What we need, it's uh, the mechanics of the whole thing. We need trucks, we need motorcycles, we need riders mechanics. You know, they can they can put all the elements together, but it doesn't work, right? Why doesn't it work? I mean, even companies with a lot of money to throw at it, they still don't pull it off. Why is that? And I think it's because yeah. the, the those people like Mitch and Roger, it, those positions, the importance of having the mentorship, and the guidance, even if it's um, what are we going to test this week? It seems like not that big of a deal. Or how are we going to refine? How are we going to improve? You have to. A lot of times, everybody's got you got fifteen guys on the team, and they all want to go fifteen different directions, right? How do you somewhat, you know, be somewhat compassionate and considerate? But you, you got to keep that focus, right? Uh huh. And and uh, anyway, I think it's pretty clear. There's a few guys that do it really well, and then there's a bunch of other people that don't understand it. Well, to this day, um, I I wrote a column about it in Cycle News. I lament about it to different people. We've had teams come in and out, and and I yeah. can honestly say a lot of times the reason they fail is because they hire their buddy to be a manager, or they hire an yeah. underqualified guy to be a manager, and they don't realize yeah. how important that is. Um, exactly. Uh, okay, so McGrath wins. He's winning everything. Lampson wins. Henry wins. Pretty much everything Dave Arnold touches is winning. Um, yeah. When did when did you uh, when did you get out of racing and why? And t- talk about sort of the end of your racing uh, career. Uh, before I answer that, <laughs> but it, um, that team was the most fun. You know, it, we came from something that was the most. Disaster <laughs> environment, and that team you just talked about with Henry. I mean, it was such a joy his mm-hmm. his um, to work with the relationship that Doug and Jeremy had, Lamson. Right. Um, just just a really good team, and it was really hard for me to walk away from that. And uh, honestly. Um, you know, it's still to this day, there's some things, there's some elements I miss within racing. But for, for me, um, you know, I work for a big corporation, and I, I do have a family. And I think it's, you know, it's a whole lifestyle traveling and doing this week in and week out, right? Right. And, you know, you got to balance all this stuff in life. You know, you got to balance your your personal time. How much do I get to ride my bicycle? Which, you know, all those things, when you're racing, there is no, the priority is racing, and that's it, right? I mean, especially at that level. At that time, I don't know how it is now. I assume it's the same, but, you know, I couldn't let Honda down. I couldn't, I had, I had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of pressure. And I, but it was like I'd been doing this on the road, traveling 35 weekends out of the year at least Mm -hmm. or more. And uh, I, I got this um, year, you know how they give corporations give you awards for you've been here for five years or yeah. whatever, right, 10 years. Yeah, and yeah. I got this 20-year award, and it was like a light went off, went on, and, and it was like, that's it. I mean, it's uh, – and I, I also felt like the sport was starting to change for even – you know, I was always more of a techie, geeky, you know, I was really a hardware guy, really. That's what I enjoyed was the development and the hardware. And not that you still can't do that now, but 
production regulations slowed that down to some degree. And then yeah. I felt over time Japan starting maybe to back off just a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, I had, and it maybe it was a sign of the times. Like, you can't really sustain that level of even the financial. But, you know, now the sport's changing. Now it's getting more television and sponsors. And I think the focus is changing, and that's all good. And I, I think that Honda was trying to make an investment not only in their own hardware and technology, and but the sport, right? They wanted the sport to grow. They wanted sponsors. You know, they of course they want to have all the championships, but at the same time, you know, they enjoyed the competition. They enjoyed the sporting of it all, and they wanted the sport itself to flourish and maybe it go the way of some of the other sports. And uh, maybe for me personally, I, I enjoy working directly with engineers on new concepts and new engines. And I think... It, well, I don't know. I wasn't really a camera guy or a high-profile guy or maybe not even that much of a social guy, you know. And uh, I think some of the technical challenging things started to, you know, some of the some of the satisfaction I got from those elements started to uh, become less. And then maybe some of the pressure, you know, when, when uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it started to change, and I was probably, man, we, uh, when we were doing it, but... Uh, you know, Honda was alive, and his project leaders, you know, he was bitch-slapping them around, and they were bitch-slapping me around, and <laughs> that was a different deal, you know, and yeah. it changed enough to where it wasn't actually that anymore, right? And uh, so, One, uh, well, I think that's... Also, too, as a techie guy, you were probably pissed that MC used the same frame and motor every single year. <laughs> oh, Jeremy? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I, I, no, no, not really. I mean, uh, you were like, you hey, know, God, you, come of course, on, of course, you get a little bit of pressure. You know how companies. I mean, all yeah. these things are supposed to be better every year, but right. um, not really. I mean, okay. actually, I think uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, are you even proud of the fact that we tested so much, and I think we understood that Jeremy had a specific riding style, and that chassis was unique to that riding style. I mean, you can't say it wasn't a good match. It wasn't just luck. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it fit. Yeah. So did the power band. Yeah. But I can tell you that Stanton hated that bike. You know, Stanton hated that chassis setting. Stanton hated that engine setting, you know, because right. and we would, you know, the, you're working with engineers trying to find out, well, why is that? I mean, you have all this telemetry on the bike, and mm -hmm. one guy says, wow, this one's got really good bottom and big hit and, and a lot of power, and the other guy goes, it has no bottom, no hit, no power, right? Right, right. So, so um, that that formula that was created for Jeremy was it, it was a really good formula. Hard to do, hard, yeah, hard to hard to argue with it. <laughs> it was very hard to argue. Oh, how do you how do you argue? I mean, yeah. and it's not that they didn't challenge it every other year. They were like, okay, we got this new stuff, you know. And Jeremy's, you know, he was a good guy about it. He'd try it, but he's like, nope. I, I, I like my try. I like. I'm pretty comfortable with this thing right here. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Bob, Bob Oliver told me one time too. There was a year in the mid '90s, I believe it was in the '94. YZ 250s were pulling every hole shot with Chicken and Larry Ward yeah. and Kyle Lewis. Yeah. Um, they were yeah. pulling every hole shot out there, and they, they, they had engineers come out and look at the bike, and the way it delivered the power off of the starting gate with with, yeah. with the amount that it would dig versus the amount it would move forward, um, yeah. the relationship between the pivot, the wheel, the frame, yeah. they could never yeah. duplicate it. They could never duplicate it with another model, you know? Um, yeah. 
yeah. it's just funny that way. It's like the smallest yeah, stuff. It's fascinating. You know what's fascinating about the whole sport, mm. and, and it's exactly what you just said, and that's when you talk about the techie geeky guy, is that that thing you're talking about, I mean, of course, at some level, it's a science, right? Right. But it's such a dynamic. I mean, all those elements have to be in harmony and in balance. And, mm-hmm. and you know what I mean? It's like uh, whether it's the, the, the balance of suspension character or the dynamic balance of the chassis not to pitch or to pitch enough or have enough weight transferred for cornering but enough weight transferred to the rear for traction and to stay flat off the jumps. And it's, it's never-ending, you know, trying to, you know, it's, it's easy to, somebody wants to improve cornering character, right? But how do you do that without ruining stability or pitching in the whoops? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 uh, and all those things that you comment, Bob Oliver commented, those are, you know, it's the best tuners, and I think it's what some of these guys – uh, that, that we, you know, whether the Mitch or Roger, I, I think you have to kind of understand all those elements, and your mind has to be mechanical enough um, to understand, to actually relate to the the equipment and 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 the dynamics of how all of those. Mm-hmm. issues are in harmony or work together, right? Right, right. And uh, I think a lot of times it's even difficult for engineers, pure engineers, to understand that they need guys like, well, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. sometimes hard for them. People, you talked about some of the bikes being developed, but um, and sometimes those developments are led by purely theoretical, you, you know, you have all these really smart guys with PhDs out of mm-hmm. Tokyo University, right? And then, yeah. but you know, and they go, well, we want this bike to have a mass centralized whatever, right? But still, the best bike is the best balanced bike, and you want to improve maneuverability or whatever it is without without hindering any other element, right? Right, right, yeah. It's it's uh, it's such a balance, you know? Um, it's incredible yep. that, uh, that you were such a point leader for all of that, too, between the racing and the production. Um, I would definitely think that you have a better handle on it than most people walking this earth really um you know it's pretty pretty crazy i appreciate that um but what they also say you're you're a figment of your own imagination right <laughs> yeah so. maybe that's it right. uh, well, yeah. hey, well thank you man I, I, we'll wrap this up shy of two hours uh i could go on and on and on with a guy like you it's fascinating uh to hey, it's, me. Fun. it's fun it's fun it's a uh, thank you for uh for having me on, and, and it's fun talking about it, and uh, we'll, we'll do it again on, on another issue or related issue someday. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much, Dave Arnold, for uh, coming on the show for part two, and make sure everybody listens to part one. Also, there's some good information in that. And, uh, yeah, thanks again, Dave, and we will see you around. All right, Steve. See you at the races. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show brought to you by Transworld Motocross. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take the money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like being a dead horse. I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course, they did. everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. 
There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled piss and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that you could you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Mathis on the iTunes Store to find these and many more great podcasts. I won't let this die. You know I've got this bad opinion.